How important is it that fantasy baseball look like the real game? We'll talk about that and more with Corey Schwartz, Vice President and Director of Stats at MLB.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 3rd. It's show number 27 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Corey Schwartz of MLB.com about advanced technology and new metrics, how much fantasy baseball should resemble the on-field game. He'll have his studs and duds and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at injuries to David Wright and Hunter Pence and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at the aftermath of the Marlin Bird PED suspension, the recalls of Byron Buxton and Max Kepler to Minnesota, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on San Diego outfield prospect Hunter Renfro. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at Pittsburgh's pair of elite pitching prospects and wonders if we might soon see a new catcher in Arizona. In our Frequent Flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Miami second baseman Derek Dietrich and Texas right-handed reliever Matt Bush. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including an American League Saturday game with Oakland left-hander Rich Hill visiting Houston and right-hander Colin McHugh and an intriguing Sunday National League matchup with Atlanta right-hander Matt Wisler in Los Angeles to take on Dodgers left-hander Scott Kazmier. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the miraculous comeback Thursday night at Petco Park. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're starting the middle third of the season. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show as always, and in the first inning of our show as always, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. And it's good to have you back, Nick. Last week or the week before, we talked about the potential for the Washington Nationals to call up their fine shortstop prospect, Trey Turner. And lo and behold, our wisdom has been borne out. It has happened. Now, he's only been recalled to replace Ryan Zimmerman on the paternity list for now. But uh, Trey Turner, what's his likelihood of hanging on? Well, you know, there's, there's probably a pretty good chance he could hang on if he hits. Here's a guy that we know about Trey Turner based on what we've seen in the minors. There's there's a guy with a career 319 hitter in the minors, uh, currently 17 stolen bases for uh, for Syracuse, hitting 310, uh, could easily easily reach a 30 stolen base season. Uh, batting average is a strength, uh, not a whole lot of power right now, really just gap power. So the question is, how long is he going to be up? He may be up just as long as Ryan Zimmerman is on paternity leave and could cover second base while Daniel Murphy moves to first, but. Danny Espinoza has been an absolute disaster uh, so far at, uh, at shortstop for, uh, for Washington. And if it looks like Turner can handle shortstop, and there's some questions about arm strength for that position, he sure could wind up staying up and, and just forcing Espinoza right out of the picture. So uh, certainly somebody you want to pick up if he's out there on your waiver wire, which he probably isn't. 
But uh, I, if, I, if I had him, I'd get him in a lineup this current week at least. The call-up of Trey Turner was covered by Nick Richards from the BaseballHQ.com scouting staff, and he mentioned a, a question about uh, Trey Turner, and that is defensively. He's a shortstop, but he has some problems defensively, and there was even some reports that they were going to try to move him to second base as a more or less permanent thing. He was playing down there in the minor leagues, and of course he's going to be playing second base while he's in Washington for this turn at least. What are the chances that Trey Turner is going to be able to handle shortstop from the defensive side of things? Well, you know, it's one of those things that I think is an open question. I don't think we have the kind of, probably the kind of, um, questions we have about some guys coming up in terms of their their position but but it, it is an open question as to whether Turner will be a major league shortstop or whether he'll be better off at second base the bat's not a question he's going to hit but uh where he winds up defensively could be could certainly be an issue well it certainly looms as an issue for the Nationals Nick they have aspirations to go for a fairly long ride in the playoffs and to do that I think they're going to have to have some production from that shortstop spot which they're not getting from Danny Espinosa he's hitting around 200 it's he looks overmatched at the plate most of his at bats just not a solution for them offensively and you can't afford to have a pitcher in your lineup and a 200 hitter Right, very definitely. So they, they need Turner's bat in the lineup. He would be a big a, a good piece for them if he can uh, can hack it at shortstop defensively. And to his credit, it's not an issue of range, which it often is for these shortstops who are getting called up. He has uh, acceptable range for a shortstop. The issue is his arm, and uh, that, Nick, is something that can be coached. Right, that's very true. That's very, very true. I mean, he, can, he apparently does have the range for shortstop uh, if he can get the arm uh, the arm under control and make the throws that he needs to make, then certainly that's something that uh, that down the road could be uh, a, a big thing. But the question is, can he handle it right now? Nick, the New York Mets got some bad news this week. They're going to have to put David Wright, their third baseman, on the DL with a herniated disc in his neck. Apparently it's unrelated to the problems he's been having with spinal stenosis, but he is going to be out at least four to six weeks, according to Ken Rosenthal of FoxSports.com. They're going to call up Matt Reynolds from AAA Las Vegas, but in the meantime, looks like Wilmer Flores gets some at-bats as the Mets' regular third baseman. Well, you know, yeah, it looks like David Wright. I mean, it was interesting because at the start of the season, we we said at Baseball HQ, the problem with David Wright is not going to be his ability to hit. It's going to be his ability to stay in the lineup. Uh, and that certainly has already proven to be the case. He's been in and out, and now it looks like he could be out for a long time. Probably the, the, the biggest beneficiary at third base for the Mets will be Wilmer Flores. And, you know, Wilmer Flores is kind of an interesting guy. At, at this point, he's not hitting very well to start the season. He's uh, 60 at bats, just one home run. 167 batting average, uh, the kind of guy you look at and say, really? But, uh, you know, here's a guy that, that in the past has shown that he's got some power, and if he gets a full-time job, could actually do something with it. Last year, 483 at bats, 16 home runs, 263 batting average. Not bad at all. That was an 11, 10, 11, $12 player. So now with, with right out, it's possible that he could reach those at bat levels again, and once he gets to the point where we're getting some uh, uh, some better luck. Nine, at this point, just a 19% hit rate, and that's what's causing the problem. Uh, so once the hit rate comes back to 26 27%, which has been normal for him, uh, then I think the batting average will come back up, and uh, there'll be a possibility of that power that, he, that power that he does have coming into play a bit. 
in what might even be worse news than what the New York Mets heard about David Wright, the Giants have put Hunter Pence, their outfielder, on the DL. He's got a left hamstring injury. He's going to be out for a while. Rob Carroll covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. The team has recalled outfielder Mac Williamson from AAA, but he doesn't look like he's going to be the main beneficiary of playing time. So who is? The biggest uh, beneficiary of that injury is going to be Jarrett Parker. And Jarrett Parker is an interesting sort of guy. Uh, excellent, excellent power. Uh, at this point, 31 at bats, one home run, but a 118 PX uh, power index, and that could even be higher. The problem with Jared Parker is swing and miss. Right now, a 71% contact rate. We're projecting only a 55% contact rate for the rest of the season. So we might see really good power out of Jared Parker. We also might see him striking out a lot. And so that's that's really the issue. And, of course, the strikeouts are going to lead to a, a batting average kind of in, we're projecting, what, 229, currently hitting 226. So this looks like a potential power source if you're looking for one for your team, but also a low BA source. Well, Nick, I mentioned that the Giants called up Mac Williamson. I said that he's not likely to get a ton of playing time. He seems to be the kind of guy that they bring up and down uh, during the season for bench depth. But maybe I should ask you, how might Mac Williamson help a fantasy owner? Well, you know, I think that's. I think you you hit it when you said bench depth. I mean, this is the kind of this is the guy they they call up when they're when they're uh, when they're struggling a bit on the uh, bench side and uh, let him come up to to. Uh, get a few at-bats. I don't think he's likely to do a whole lot for fantasy owners. Uh, at this point, he has three hits and 16 at-bats. We're projecting only another 63 at-bats for the course of the year. Uh, 229 batting average, one home run. So not a guy I think you want to look at. He's probably going to be up and down a lot, uh, depending on when, uh, when folks come off the DL for uh, San Francisco. I guess there's some possibility he'll pick up a handful of at-bats. Nick, uh, Jared Parker's a left-handed hitter who does not fare well against left-handed pitching, so I guess maybe uh, Mac Williamson could step up there, but there's no question this is a big blow for San Francisco to lose Hunter Pence. They definitely miss him. I mean, this is this Jared Parker's not going to replace Hunter Pence, and so definitely is going to be missed. And Angel Pagan, of course, is on the DL right now, too, so the Giants are a little bit thin in the outfield at this point. Well, like the Mets, um, also like the Nationals, the Giants have aspirations to go far in the playoffs. They're going to need some kind of offense out of that outfield spot. Is there a chance that they go out and uh, do something in the trade market? Right now, Angel Pagan is uh, expected to be back uh, by next Wednesday. And if that happens, that will put them back at, uh, at semi-full strength without, uh, with, with Pence missing. So you know, the other thing that, we're, that, that could happen is we may see more, more Angel Pagan than we were likely to before. Uh, with Pence on the DL, and that's certainly a possibility. Nick, one of my favorite columns at BaseballHQ.com is The Speculator. Ray Murphy and some other writers look at the higher risk, uh, lower percentage plays that you might want to think about making. And this week's column looks at buy-high candidates. We all know about selling high, but Ray says some of those sell-high candidates are actually buy-high candidates. They're guys you should be looking at if they come on the trade market in your league. And one of the names in the National League that Ray looked at was St. Louis outfielder Stephen Piscotti. Yeah, Stephen Piscotti is off to a hot start. and But already as we start looking at career sort of... Uh, uh, season-long numbers based upon this season, based upon last season. At this point, 421 at-bats or big league career, 314 batting average, 38% hit rate. That's probably a little bit high. So we wouldn't want to say he owns that kind of level of, of hit rate yet. But, you know, there's some pretty good skills here and uh, uh, good power, 
certainly the kind of hitter I think at this point that would be worth targeting if someone thinks that you're dealing with a fluke early in the season. And uh, as as uh, Ray suggests, not a guy you, you would be worried too much about overpaying for. Uh, if I were in a keeper league especially, I think Piscotty's a guy I'd be looking at. We're looking at a 25-year-old right now who's uh, at this point projected for 11 home runs, 265 batting average through the rest of the season. Uh, not bad at all for somebody who's just getting their feet wet in the majors. I like the 80% contact rate. Uh, when I started at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, uh, 80% was considered something of a floor for established players. Now that floor, I think, is more like 70%. So when you see a young player like Stephen Piscotty having that 80% contact rate, that's a very positive sign for me. I also like the 10% walk rate. Uh, we have some Baseball HQ research that suggests not as important in uh, predicting batting average as we once thought, but certainly very important in predicting power. And that means that the one 110 px that Stephen Piscotty has and his 113 hard contact index so he's 10 to 13 percent above league average for power so he has some support for that in that walk rate so the issue here is that some owners are going to look at Stephen Piscotty and they're going to say this is fluky and I've got to get rid of Stephen Piscotty while the getting's good and that presents an opportunity for the canny fantasy owner in a national league or mixed league but I think Nick you're going to have to be ready to pay the price yeah, very definitely, and so I would think uh, I would think uh, Piscotty is a, is a good target, uh, and certainly a, a definite buy high possibility. In his batting buyer's guide column, uh, Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com is looking at base performance value leaders for the month of May. That is, uh, guys who had terrific skills for the month. And one of the names really surprised me: Arizona catcher Chris Herman. I actually I, I stumbled on Chris Herman a few a couple of weeks ago when I was looking for a replacement second catcher. Uh, and have been real happy with him. What Stephen pointed out is that Chris Herman has the second highest fly ball distance of any bat in Major League Baseball. Kind of amazing. Uh, and a top 40 exit velocity when he makes contact. Uh, good plate skills in the month of May. 13% walk rate. Uh, 0.58i. 145 hard contact index. 205 expected power index. Uh, an elite 213 power index against right-handed bats. Wow. Uh, and this is a guy who really at this point I think is under the radar and someone that might make a real nice target as a second catcher if you're in a league that uses two catchers. Um, so far for the season, 86 at-bats, 5 home runs, 20 RBIs, 279 batting average, and 2 stolen bases. Uh, I would take that from a second catcher, wouldn't you? Heck, I might take it from a first catcher. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, so I think Chris Herman is a, is a, a kind of under-the-radar guy to take a look at at this point. Uh, he's a left-handed hitter, which means that even in a platoon, he's going to be in there most of the time uh, facing the right-handed pitcher. So uh, certainly a guy worth targeting, I think. Our projections for the rest of the season are a little less, more pessimistic. 102 at-bats, two homers, 226 batting average. Uh, that was based on uh, on previous years, a kind of perception of Chris Herman. And I think Stephen's right. I think this is a guy that as a second catcher is sure worth looking at. I'm a bit concerned about the expected batting average around 250. I guess that's not so bad nowadays, but his projected batting average at BaseballHQ.com is in the 220s, which concerns me and surprises me to a little bit. Uh, but I'll tell you something about this guy, Nick, that really intrigues me. I like to prorate stats. Now, he's got 86 at-bats, you said, five home runs. A typical catcher's at-bat load for a season is around 450, 
Maybe some guys like A.J. Przinsky and those Ironman catchers pick up a few more. But if we say 430 to 450, that's five times what he's got so far this year. So multiply all of his counting stats by five. And what you get is 25 home runs, 100 RBIs, 75 runs scored, and 10 stolen bases. And that's a stat line that I would take from any catcher. I would sure take that from a catcher. So, you know, at this point, at this point if Chris Herman's a guy on your waiver wire that you can pick up for a buck or two, Definitely worth a shot. Steven Nickrand also writes the starting pitcher buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, as you know. And uh, the same kind of thing that he did with his hitters column. He's looking at base performance value leaders for the month of May. Mentioned Aaron Nola. I really like Aaron Nola. We've talked about him here at Baseball HQ Radio. Robbie Ray of Arizona as well seems interesting to me. But the guy uh, that really intrigues me is uh, Jeremy Hellickson, kind of a reclamation project up there in Philadelphia. Yeah, Jeremy Jeremy Hellickson is really coming back uh, out of the uh, out of the depths, and at this point, uh, numbers aren't aren't all that good for him. He he struggled a bit in May uh, with an ERA that was above four, uh, which wasn't really his fault. Twenty uh, percent home run per fly rate inflated the uh, the ERA, but we're looking at a guy with a thirteen point two percent swinging strike rate, so missing bats again at a really nice level. Uh, and, and overall for the season, a 3.68 earned run average. So I think Jeremy Hellickson is a guy that currently is still under the radar, available on some waiver wires and could really, could really do some, uh, be of some value, uh, to a team. If you go back, go back a few years before he got hurt, 2012, 2011, we had a guy posting a 2.95 ERA, a 3.1 ERA. Uh, and then, then we, you know, they had some injuries and so, we're, we're, uh, earn run average went up. And so he didn't look so good anymore. Beginning to look a little more vintage at this point with a 3.68 ERA for the season, uh, and a, uh, a BPV of 132. So, uh, certainly someone worth looking at. I agree with you, Nick, but I think the problem might be Jeremy Hellickson's stats so far this year are a 368 ERA, which is actually above his expected ERA, a 115 whip, 65 strikeouts in 64 innings, only 14 walks. And four wins, boy, I think you're going to have to work hard to pry this guy out of an owner's hands. He's having a pretty decent year, especially for the price he probably costs most owners. That's true. You know, if he's, you know, if he's already on a roster, then uh, certainly it's uh, not, not somebody that you're going to get easily on the trade market. But he may be, still be out there on some waiver wires, given his history. Uh, 4.62 ERA a year ago at 146 innings. So certainly maybe a lot of folks questioning whether what we're seeing today is real. And the... Uh, the secondary numbers would say that it is. That swinging strike rate is very good, a 9.2 dom, uh, only walking two guys per nine innings. So it looks as though the skills we're seeing could be very real. Uh, and if he's on the waiver wire, I'd grab him immediately. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'd grab him off the waiver wire immediately, too. I just don't think he's going to be on too many waiver wires in leagues. Yeah, that, that's possible. All right, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back from Mexico. Oh, Mexico is great, PD. A uh, lot of fun. Got to meet a lot of uh, interesting people, uh, get a little downtime, uh, went to some great restaurants. Uh, uh, love going there. 
Well, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you had a good time. Uh, not such a good time in Cleveland, especially for Marlon Bird. He got caught using PEDs for a second time, got a 162-game suspension at his age, maybe the end of his career. Uh, Tom Kephart wrote this up for Baseball HQ's Playing Time Today. Hey, what's going to go on in the Cleveland outfield now that Marlon Bird will be on the outside looking in? Yeah, that's not a great situation, obviously. Uh, they were a little thin in terms of... Uh, of um, Solid outfield play. Uh, Michael Brantley still on the deal with shoulder issues. Uh, Kep noted that. Uh, Jose Ramirez looks like the best bet who's going to get a lot of, uh, uh, of playing time. Um, they also recalled Tyler Naquin uh, to, to take um, Bird's spot. They've been hesitant in giving Naquin full-time play. His uh, he's, he's hit over 300 to date, but if you look at his his strikeouts and his contact, and uh, even to a lesser extent, obviously his walk rate. Uh, that 300 batting average doesn't look uh, doesn't look particularly solid. Um, and if you look at the other Cleveland outfield positions, I mean, you've got not Lonnie Chisenhall and uh, Raj Davis. They're doing well so far, but honestly, how long is that going to last? I mean, neither of these guys are, are in an age or have produced recently that, uh, to any degree that uh, fantasy owners have to be happy about this. And you got Bobby Bradley, who they'd hoped to be ready by now. He's hitting 238 in double A, so um, not a good situation in that Cleveland outfield. Not a good situation for fantasy owners hoping to take advantage, which is often the case when we see something like this happen. So uh, overall, if you had to place a bet, is it Jose Ramirez? Yeah, I would I would bet on Ramirez, and Ramirez has actually got a, got some things going for him. He has a little speed. He makes good contact. Um, this is a guy who, if anyone's going to win playing time in Cleveland uh, going forward or up his playing time on the basis of Bird's injury, it's going to be Ramirez. In Minnesota, they've had some bad news as well, this having to do with injuries and the disabled list. They sent both Miguel Sano, the power-hitting well, they call him an outfielder, but he's actually, <laughs> if you've seen him play outfield, you know it's kind of a uh, more wishful thinking than an actual designation. He's nominally a third baseman, really a DH. He's going to the DL, and so is Danny Santana, who had been the center fielder, played a little shortstop in past years, and was having a pretty decent year, especially in the stolen base department. They've recalled Max Kepler and Byron Buxton, a couple of top prospects, and they're getting some playing time. Is any of this going to help them or fantasy owners? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, I I'm a I'm still a big believer in Byron Buxton. Um, he's going to struggle. He's 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 going to learn on the job. But Cleveland's not competing, so who cares? And and Buxton's going to um, going to have some contact problems. He's going to strike out. Uh, I didn't foresee his problems earlier in the season that they were going to be that bad. But but they didn't surprise me. Um, this is a guy who could grow and get better, should get better as the season goes on. I think he will. Max Kepler is another guy I've liked, and I'm glad to see them giving him a chance to play. He's played uh, every game since he's been called up. He's started. Uh, he got two hits the other night. Uh, hit, hit, he's been hitting line drives. Uh, he's got good contact, uh, good batting eye. These guys are two of the guys, I think, that are obviously uh, uh, in, in Minnesota's outfield of the future. I hope it's not Sano, but but Cleveland, or I'm sorry, Minnesota right now has Sano in right field, which, like you've said, is, is kind of a travesty because they've got other outfield prospects who are better defenders, and Sano's best position isn't in the outfield, that's for sure. Yeah, to say the least. You know, Kepler's an interesting guy. He's a pretty decent stolen base guy. He's got above average speed in general, and he's six feet four, which is kind of tall, and you'd think he'd have a little trouble getting the ball rolling as far as uh, getting a jump out of first base, but he does all right. Yeah, Kepler's a really good athlete. He got a late start to baseball. He's from Berlin, um, 
and he's a guy who can run and he hasn't hit for much power in the minor leagues but if you look at his athleticism in that 6-4 frame um, this is a guy whose power could come down say you know two three years down the road I like him a lot He's done all right uh, as far as his limited at-bats this year at Minnesota. His contact rate is pretty low. He's been striking out an awful lot, but he's drawing his share of walks around 9-10%. And when he does manage to get the bat on the ball, infrequent as though it is, uh, hard contact index of 129, expected power index of 128, that's decent power even in such a small, short sample. Yeah, it really is, and I and I think uh, I think Minnesota is going to play him unless he proves overmatched. I don't think he will. This is the second time he's been up. He's finally getting some playing time. He was really coming on strong in AAA. He had a terrific year last year. Um, I think Mac, Max Kepler is uh, is worth a, 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 a fantasy flyer right now. His projected balance for the year two eighty two for a batting average, so that's a real help in most formats. Uh, Minnesota's now. What are we just? two months before the July 31st trade deadline. They've got a lot of loose ends, a lot of kind of half-decent half parts, and they're going nowhere. Do you think there's uh, trade trades uh, are in their future? And if so, who might be going and what's the fantasy impact? What is Minnesota doing here? You know, there should be trades in their future, and, and maybe they should start in the front office because this is a team, when you look back at the winner at what they did, I, I really couldn't understand it. Uh, start with the pitching just for a minute. Their pitching problems are probably worse than anticipated. Uh, I don't think anyone expected Jose Barrios to do as badly as he did. A lot of people anticipated that he might be better in his MLB debut. Um, and right now in the minors, I mean, his last start, he looked terrible, so he's got to regroup. Um, they've got another guy named Tyler J down in the minors. He was their number one draft pick, a college product last year. He's being converted from reliever to starter, and the results have been terrific so far. You have to wonder how he, fast he can come, given his pedigree. Um, but they really need pitching. In the outfield, they have gluts. We already talked about how uh, Buxton and Kepler look like two-thirds of their, of their outfield of the future. Hopefully, Sano's not going to be there. They have other options. Um, they have to figure out what to do with guys like... Uh, uh, Oswaldo, Arcia, and Eddie Rosario. I mean, here's a guy, again, who I, I might like more than I should. Um, he's got sneaky power and good speed. He has no batting eye whatsoever. He got sent down to the minors recently. Um, he has zero walks in 60 at-bats, but he's hitting 317 in AAA. I mean, wh what do you do with a guy like that? And then you have Robbie Grossman, who's really complicating things. He looks better than he's ever looked. He's he's playing in the outfield in place of Sano. Um Robbie Grossman's never done anything at the major league level. He always he's always had contact problems, a little bit of patience. But all of a sudden, he's hitting like he belongs in the picture. So um, Minnesota's got some issues, and the, and they need to trade some of these guys. I I agree with you about how the uh, front office of the Twins set this team and this roster up. They seem to think that the more sort of first base DH big plotting guys you could have on your roster, the better. And all of a sudden, they look around and they've got real problems putting guys who can field their positions out there with a few exceptions. I mean, obviously some of these guys are okay, but Arcia, Sano, these are two pretty similar kind of body types, kind of uh, defensive liabilities for the most part. I don't know what they were thinking. And now we're kind of looking down the road at Jorge Polanco and Nick Gordon, guys like that. And that still, could still be a couple of years away. Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure about if, if Polanco is a couple of years away. I think he's out of options next year, and he's already 
believe it or not, they started his clock a long time ago, um, bringing him, yo-yoing him a little bit. But right now, he looks like a better option than Brian Dozier at second base. I mean, and this is the problem with the Twins. Not only did they make bad decisions, but they've had a, a few players decline that they didn't expect. Um, they have to figure out what to do with Dozier and what to do with second base. As you said, they've got a real glut at DH first base. I mean, Sano's best position is either DH or third. It's certainly not in the outfield. Yet they go out and si sign um, the uh, the Korean DH, uh, Byung-ho Park, who is another power guy who doesn't hit for average. I, I'm, I'm not sure what they're trying to do. Oh, and they kept Trevor Plouffe, who obviously should have been traded. He's the third baseman that pushed Sano into the outfield, and he's not performing up to par this year. So Minnesota has a lot of pieces they, could, uh, they can uh, deal off, and they have a lot of decisions to make. And the whole thing further complicated because they've got Joe Maurer and his colossal contract gumming things up at first base despite the fact that he's clearly not the kind of offensive producer you want at first base in this modern era of baseball he's just a, a plugger out there I mean high batting average is fine but he's just not doing anything beyond that yeah um, high batting average obviously some on base percentage but you're right a 422 uh, slugging percentage doesn't uh, cut it unfortunately they're stuck with him um for the uh, for the probably the duration of that contract, and um, if if they're going to have that kind of production at first base, they're going to have to find uh, they're going to have to find different uh, things at other spots. And their problem, I think, Jock, that uh, just to wrap this up, I think one of their big problems is even if they decide they're going to start making some trades, who's going to want a lot of these guys? You mentioned that Dozier's really fallen off something of a cliff. Uh, of course, they want to hang on to Sano and some of these younger guys, but who's going to take Joe Maurer? at this point. If he could go back behind the plate, lots of people would like him, I expect, but he's never going to do that again because of the concussion issues. I don't. I, I can see that Minnesota should be making deals. I have a lot of trouble imagining what deals they could make. That's exactly right. Um, if, if they're going to trade Maurer, they're going to have to eat a lot of his contract. This current front office isn't going to do that. They would have to have a new front office with a mandate to get that done. I wouldn't be surprised if guys like Arcee are somehow dealt. There's really no room for him on this roster, and, and they're sitting him again. Um, again, guys like Grossman, who, who's come out of nowhere, he's complicating things. Uh, Rosario, um, do they think he's salvageable? I mean, this guy is only 22, 23 years old, and he's got a quick bat. What do you do with guys like that? I don't know what you do with them. Uh, I know I'm glad I don't have to make that kind of decision for myself. It's very, uh, must be very distressing for Minnesota fans and maybe even for the players and, and clearly for the whole organization. They just seem to be wandering in the desert and I don't see any way out. Uh, over in Detroit, their uh, rotation has been uh, a little bit askew. They've finally sent Annabelle Sanchez to the bullpen. Uh, can he come back, do you think, this year? Has he got anything left? And if not, what does the back of the rotation look like? Are there any opportunities here at all? You know, I wrote up uh, Sanchez in the baseball forecaster this past year. He looked broken then, and he looks broken now. His velocity is down. His walks are up. Um, doesn't look like he have a lot of. He has a lot of confidence. Um, his ERA is what up around or or looks like it's over six. It's six point six seven as we speak right now. I don't see how he gets back to the rotation uh, without a without some sort of a complete makeover, and I don't know where that's going to come from. The good news there has been Michael Fulmer's performance. He's been terrific. Um, rookie. I saw him pitch uh, against the Angels the other night. He outdueled uh, Matt Shoemaker. Um, there are questions everywhere else. Um, um, Jordan Zimmerman uh, has has deteriorated a little bit. He's still a pretty good pitcher, uh, but he's had some groin issues. Um, 
Mike Pelfrey has been uh, pretty awful. Um, Matt Boyd, uh, the substitute, the, the, the pitcher who moved into the rotation for Sanchez, has been serviceable as a, for a back-end kind of guy. Um, he's, he's no great shakes. Um, Shane Green is on the DL purportedly with, a, purportedly with a blister issue since late April, but he pitched poorly all of April. So I'm not sure what they're going to do with the back of their rotation in Detroit right now. Can they get Daniel Norris to hop into his uh, van that he lives in and drive from whatever uh, minor league outpost he's at back to Detroit? Yeah, that's a good question. Daniel Norris has a lot of talent. He's down in the minors now. It's going to be an option that Detroit's going to have to explore. Getting back to Annabelle Sanchez briefly, I know he's not the greatest uh, pitcher in the world, but he's sort of league average in uh, dominance. He's got 7.6 strikeouts per nine innings. That's not so bad. The problem he seems to be having is clearly with his control, he's up to 4.6 walks per nine, which is not going to get the job done. And had given up home runs in that park, 2.2 home runs per nine and 18% home run per fly ratio. That seems to me to be an indicator that there's something wrong with Annabelle Sanchez that goes beyond just bad. Yeah, and, and if you look at his injury history, that could be a factor here too. We don't know what he's dealing with. He's he's had injuries recently in the past. They've shelved him. They've contributed to some of these problems. Uh, he's just To me, he's just not a good bet going forward. In Seattle, they've climbed into a first-place tie in the American League West after a thrilling comeback victory on Thursday night. I understand you watched that game. I sure did. Uh, it was really interesting. They kept hitting single after single with two outs. I forget how many runs they scored, but uh, it was a fascinating game. It grabbed my attention last night. And if you missed it, I'll have Master Notes. We'll be recapping the big comeback victory by Seattle on Thursday. They came from 10 down to win it 16-13. It was a very exciting game, and the uh, the uh, call of it was uh, really fun to listen to. But Seattle's got some bad news in their own right, even though they've climbed into that first-place position. They've lost their all-time greatest pitcher, Felix Hernandez, is on the DL with a strained calf. They recalled James Paxton at one time a top, pitching prospect for the Mariners, and he got just manhandled versus San Diego on Wednesday night. Roz Truesdell at BaseballHQ.com wrote about Paxton fairly positively, and he looks like he's going to get at least one more start even after that terrible debacle in uh, Petco Park. What does Rod see and what is Seattle seeing that I'm not seeing? What's your take? Well, I watched that game against San Diego, and I've been following uh Paxton's uh, uh, resurgence in the minor leagues, uh, and he was a good prospect uh, long ago. His problem in the majors was injuries, and they were mostly finger injuries, so those can be overcome, and his control. The thing I liked about what Paxton was doing in the minors, apparently he's reworked his mechanics, his strikeouts were way up, and his walks were way down. I watched the game, like I said, on Wednesday night against uh, the Padres. He made a lot of mistakes in the middle of the plate, and he threw a double play ball away at a critical time that led to a bunch of unearned runs. But frankly, aside from that, um, and and Joe Smith's, uh, their, I'm sorry, Joe West's uh, uh, really uh, tough strike zone, um, I liked a lot of what I saw in Paxton. He was actually throwing 94 to 98 miles an hour all night, all, well, all the entire time he was in the game, which was through four innings. Um, his last few pitches were 98. He, he, he reminded me a little bit of Nate Evaldi. His control was good. He struck out seven hitters and walked one. One of the problems was he needs to trust his secondary stuff more earlier in the game and just stay out of the middle of the plate. But I think this is a guy who still has a future in the majors. He's still only 27 years old, and, and there's something here. Paxton's one of those guys, Jock, that I kind of like 
in a sneaky way because he's a former top prospect, and sometimes, especially with pitchers, they take a little longer to round into form than we expect or hope or we get impatient with them. And anybody who is a former very high-level draft pick as he was and top prospect as he was, somebody want to keep a, a, an eye on just to see if it's worth finally working out. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And a guy who can throw... Um after 100 pitches, who can still throw 97-98, which was what he was throwing the, the other night, has my attention. Also in Seattle, they put Leonis Martin, their outfielder, on the DL. He's been having a pretty interesting start to the season, and now his absence creates some interesting fantasy opportunities. Uh, Rod Trusdell, again, for BaseballHQ.com, covered this story. Let's start with Martin and what's going on with him. Martin has been selling out for power, and I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, I'm one of the ones, I'm one of the people who didn't think he'd last long as the starting center fielder. Um, he'd never shown any power before in his MLB career. There was a lot of soft contact there. and But what he's done is he's reduced his contact rate. It's now 70%. It was in the mid-high 70s or so. And he is his power metrics are all of a sudden through the roof. I think he has, uh, what, seven or eight home runs for the year. And he's running still. So... I don't think they care about his low batting average. Uh, right now he's hitting, uh, and actually his batting average is on the rise. He's hitting 262. I don't think that's going to last with a 70% contact rate regardless of his speed. But if he keeps stealing bases and hitting for power, he plays really good defense. So um, he's reinvented himself somehow in Seattle, and so far it's working. Now who benefits? Uh, I understand that they got Stefan Romero, who played a role in the big comeback on Thursday night. He's getting a lot of starts in the outfield. Nori Aoki may have moved around. What is the playing time ramifications with Martin out, and how long is he going to be out? I don't think it's that long, is it? Uh, no, uh, uh, he's supposed to be out. He's supposed to come back, I, I think, on, I think it's June 10th. I think that's when he's first due. But the guy who's really benefiting all of this, in my opinion, has been Franklin Gutierrez, who's getting a lot more starts. Um, and this is a guy, obviously, who's hit for terrific power the past couple of years. He's a, he's a right-handed hitter. Um, he doesn't hit for average very well against right uh, against uh, right-handers, and he's had injuries that obviously have have curtailed his major league career. But he's hit. Uh, I I think I did a calculation: 15 home runs in his last uh, 170, 180 at bats against righties, and he just mauls lefties. And he's been uh, on a tear since. Um, uh, Martin went on the DL, and even a little bit before, frankly. So they're putting him in against righties, and and let's face it, aside from um, Nelson Cruz, there's not a lot in the Mariner outfield that uh, would keep uh, Franklin Gutierrez from getting three, four starts a week. If he keeps hitting, he's not just going to bat against lefties. He will get a start or two against righties, and this is a guy who can hit 15, 20 homers a year uh, in in a part-time role. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens. He's one of the rare examples of an established player who's got an FFF reliability score at Baseball HQ, which means uh, a very risky player from the point of view of health, from the point of view of consistency, and from the point of view of experience. And for that reason, I think if you grab Franklin Gutierrez, it's definitely a risky type of play. Yeah, I think the big knock against Gutierrez was he missed an entire season, 2014, and big chunks of seasons before that. Um, He's been healthy last year and this year. You won't find too many players with better power metrics in a part-time role than Franklin Gutierrez. All right, Jock, appreciate you coming back from Mexico to fill us in on the American League, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Sounds good, PD. See ya. 
Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our feature expert interview, Corey Schwartz from MLB.com and Major League Baseball Advanced Media. It's a real interesting guy. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me say something about greenies. First of all, greenies were not performance enhancers. At the best, they allowed a guy with a hangover or somebody who didn't get any sleep that night to be more alert and he was able to play up to his normal ability. So they were performance enablers. They were not performance enhancers. They did not they did not make him a better player than he ordinarily would. That's the difference between amphetamines and these uh, uh, human growth hormones and, and steroids. I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that's okay. I, I think there should be a ban on amphetamines too because they're not healthy, but they have to be put into a different category uh, you know, than, than the... Uh, human growth hormones. They're, they're probably something a little bit better than a cup of coffee in terms of the stimulation that you get. So I think you, you need to, uh, baseball needs to make a distinction there. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our Friday guest expert interview, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Corey Schwartz, the VP and Director of Stats for MLB.com, and a favorite guest of our show. Corey Schwartz, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Before we get started talking about uh, the advanced media and technology and all the wonderful stuff going on in Major League Baseball, uh, how are your teams doing in fantasy baseball? Uh, a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, I moved into first place this week in my keeper league, um, a competitive fourth place in Tout Wars. I think I've got some, some upward mobility there. And in two other leagues, I'm kind of stuck in the middle of the pack. But, you know, it's interesting that, <clears throat> excuse me, I tend to have a lot of the same players on a lot of my teams. So it's interesting how the players who are not the same from team to team are the ones that are di- the difference between first place or fourth place and seventh place. When you go into a, a draft, do you target the same players over and over again because you like having the same players on your team and it makes it easier to follow? Or does it just work out that way because you have your list and you draft to your list? Well, it's a little bit of the former, but also that, you know, if I have conviction about that I believe a certain player is going to produce a certain amount of value during the course of the year, I will target him on several teams because I believe in that player. Now, obviously, the dynamics, you know, of every draft is different than any other draft. So, you know, a guy who goes for a bargain in one league may go for a wildly inflated price in another, and you'll only get him in one or the other. But I do tend to start out with a list of you know, 20 or 30 players overall that I try and get, you know, several of them or as many as I can across my teams. Uh, you know, Logan Forsyth was one, Kyle Seeger was one, Corey Seeger was one. Um, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. When they all tend to hit at the same time, all of my teams are good. And uh, when I'm wrong about some of them, a lot of my teams struggle. But, you know, I, I try and draft with conviction that if I believe in a player, I try and get him. You tweeted out the other day something to that effect about about owners who handcuff players by getting their backups and demonstrating something of a lack of commitment to the player you're drafting. Yeah, I think, you know, it's one thing if you've got a player who is consistently injury-prone that you expect is going to miss a certain chunk of time. Um, You know, maybe in a case like that, you'll want to use a bench spot if you have a deep enough bench spot. But particularly when it comes to closers, I am not a believer at all in handcuffing closers. If you think your guy has the job or is going to hold the job, then that's your guy. Uh, I can't see using two or three roster spots to cover the production of one player unless it's the Yankees' three-headed bullpen monster. Uh, but, you know, going into spring training or coming out of spring training, 
some people thought Vizcaino would be the Braves' closer. Some people thought it would be Grilly. Um, you know, some people thought Jeremy Jeffries would be the, Bre- the Brewers' closer. Some guys thought Will Smith before he got hurt. Pick one, pick the one you believe in, and get that player. You mentioned that you have a solid core that has uh, repeated players across teams. How are your core players doing for you? Uh, some of them are doing pretty well. Some of the guys I mentioned earlier have, have been pretty good. Um, you know, Addison Russell has been a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, you know, I had Drew Smiley on a lot of teams, and I was feeling pretty good about that in April, and now I don't feel so good about it. Um, Jeremy Jeffries, who I just name-checked, uh, I had a good feeling about him coming out of spring training, even before the knee injury. I ended up with him on a lot of teams. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always work that way. We, just, we tend to remember the ones who work out well and try and forget about the ones who don't work out as well. So I'm not going to name any of those names because I don't want anybody to think, oh, he was totally wrong about that guy. I, I just don't want to talk about them. <laughs> Your Tow Wars League is the mixed auction, which I was in up until this year. And uh, what I remember about the league, aside from being extraordinarily competitive, was that Fred Zinke was making like 100 trades a year. Has he kept going with that? He's made a few. You know, I think by Fred Zinke standards, he's been a little bit quiet, but I think he's made four or five deals. You know, Fred is one of those guys who he churns his roster so quickly um, that it's tough to tell sometimes what is, what is the net effect of all of that effort. But when you look at all the trades on paper, it always looks like he's, he's just able to trade up just a little bit at every spot. He's giving up good players, but he's doing just a little bit better in every deal, and he tends to move up and up and up. So I'm looking at the standings right now. Um, he's in sixth place. He's about eight and a half points behind me in fourth place. And I have a feeling that before all is said and done, he will be knocking on the door of the leaders again because he does every single year. Who's leading the league? Uh, Brett Sayre from Baseball Prospectus in his first year in in, uh, Tout Wars Mixed. Um, I got off to a great start in Mixed. I was in first place up until May 7th, and I remember this distinctly because on May 8th my offense was terrible. One of my pitchers got blown up, and about three days later Brett blew by me in the standings. So... Um, he's been in first for about the last month. Scott Pianowski is in second. Uh, Joe Pisapia is right ahead of me, and then I'm in fourth. So we should have a good race. We had a great late, great race last year, and I think we will again this year. There's a rule of thumb that Ron Chandler has written about and uh, actually repeated an old column at his website just recently, and that is that if you're not sort of fourth or better on May 31st, your chances of winning are essentially next to nothing, 1% or 2%. Uh, has that been your experience in playing fantasy baseball, rotisserie baseball over the years? For the most part, you know, but for every rule, there's an exception. You know, when you say you've got a 1% chance, that means someone did it. Um, and this goes all the way back to, I remember, you know, when I started out in my AL only and NL only keeper leagues that I got into in college, one of my best friends was buried in eighth place in August. And I just remember him making a bunch of trades right before the deadline and going on an absolute tear and won the league by like a point. You know, that's an exceptional case. Um, Last year in Tout Wars, Fred won the league, uh, came from pretty far behind over the course of the season and ended up winning by a few points. So uh, it's possible. Certainly you want to be you know, in the front runner part of the, uh, part of the standings, but if you're in the middle of the pack, you, know, you, you can't give up. You have, to play through the, you have to run through the finish line, so to speak. And how far behind, Brett, are you in fourth? Um, I am 20 points behind, which sounds like a lot, but I just like to think of it as two points in each category, which really isn't that much. Um, you know, I am really, I follow each category very closely all year long and try and understand where I'm weak and where I'm strong uh, in each category and try and do things to address those specific weaknesses. So um, because of the way I tend to manage my starting pitching, I'm always pretty far behind in strikeouts. 
um, but I drafted you Darvish and just got him back last week. So I think as the season goes along, I'll be able to gradually creep up the, the points in, uh, in the strikeouts category and hopefully close ground, uh, close ground on bread as the year goes along. The important thing about rotisserie baseball, and we've talked about this before on Baseball HQ Radio, is that you have to be able to look at the categories and see where your opportunities lie. I mean, it's not at all uncommon to be sitting there kind of in the four-point, five-point area for home runs or one of the counting stats. But you look at it and you say, if I have a good week, I could pick up seven points here because everybody's clustered in that little bunch and you happen to be at the bottom of it. And conversely, if you're at the top of that bunch, you got you should be looking over your shoulder and kind of being concerned about that because so many points can change so quickly, especially in a 15 mixed where there's usually a bunch of good teams or at least a bunch of teams that have good players. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the first thing you want to do and, and need to do is protect the points you have. Uh, so, for instance, in Tout Wars, I'm leading the league in saves. Um, I'm a few ahead of Gene McCaffrey. He started out the season with three closers, but he traded one to me, and then I think he lost another one to injury. Um, or he had Sean Tolleson, who lost the job. So I'm six saves ahead of Gene, and I know now, based on that, I can probably bench one of my closers, which I did this week, Juris Familia, um, and just get by with two closers and play an extra starter and try and creep up a little bit in strikeouts. So... This week, I benched Familia and I played Robbie Ray. Ray was okay yesterday, not great, but he had eight strikeouts, which will help me a lot more than any saves that I would have gotten from Familia. Moving on, and again, before we get on to the players and and, uh, tactics and stuff like that, I'd like to congratulate you and uh, Major League Baseball Advanced Media. You guys won the Sports Business Journal Award for Best Digital Sports Media. What did the journal say about your operation in conferring this honor? Uh, thank you, Patrick. Uh, I appreciate that on, on behalf of everybody here. Um, you know, we're very fortunate. Our business has grown considerably over the years. Um, we're very active in the mobile space, in streaming video, in partner solutions, uh, BAM Tech, you know, which will effectively be our, our, our streaming solutions spinoff, is growing. Uh, we have a big partnership with the NL, NHL where we handle their digital rights. We relaunch their website, their mobile app, NHL Network is relaunching. So I think it's really just a recognition of the breadth of our business and the fact that we've been able to, um, I don't want to say stay ahead of the pack, but certainly be you know near the front of the pack in a lot of different areas that have helped the business continue to grow. So um, it's really exciting, even in our 16th season, to be a part of a company that is still growing the way we are. And uh, StatCast is gradually taking over the world. I, I have to laugh a lot of times when I watch. I have the extra innings package, so I watch a lot of baseball from a lot of different uh, areas, depending on, especially if I have a, a pitcher going in tout wars, I'll, I'll watch that game kind of thing. And there are a lot of announcers, as we both know, who are, uh, shall we say, reluctant to embrace the sabermetrics uh, <laughs> revolution in baseball. But boy, when they get to show that StatCast reanimation on on replays showing all of the various parameters that are shown on StatCast, they sound like little kids who just got a bright fire truck under the Christmas tree. They're, they're just taken with it. Yeah, it's, look, I'm, you know, I work here and I work on that program, and but uh, but I'm a fan too, and the technology is amazing, and I, I can tell you absolutely we've only scratched the surface of what StatCast will be in time. Um, you know, right now a lot of the metrics and measurements you're seeing our, our observation. They're based on how far, how fast, how many. You know, we're able to measure things that we weren't able to measure in the past. The second wave of that is starting to understand how all of these relationships work together and produce the outcomes we see on the field. So um, if we see a, ba- a runner steal a base or get caught stealing, how much credit do we give to the pitcher? How much credit do we give to the catcher? 
Uh, these are things that we can start to not only quantify right now, we'll be able to reconstruct plays and say, uh, you know, if it were this pitcher instead of that pitcher, all of the things being equal, the result would have been different. Um, if the right fielder was standing four feet to his left instead of four feet to his right, um, that would have produced a different outcome. That's the thing that's exciting for me will be the ability to model plays and start to identify the specific variables that led to one outcome instead of some other outcome. This is all really interesting and has obvious applications, not only in real baseball where the teams are looking for an edge anywhere they can get it, but in fantasy baseball we're looking for that too. And there are clear opportunities with uh, the StatCast data. And my question is, how much of that data does uh, your company want to make available to guys like me, amateur researchers, fantasy players, just looking for information or just want to noodle around like we do in Fangraphs and BaseballHQ.com stats and, and Baseball Reference? You know, some of us like looking around it for fun, and we're kind of champing at the bit to get a look at that uh, StatCast stuff. Yeah, it's, it's starting to get out there. Um, you know, again, the, the number of metrics that we've introduced in the public space is still somewhat limited as we continue to learn what the data means and figure out how to quantify that. Um, but we partnered with Baseball Savant, the great site launched by Darren Willman. Um, we're pretty much, you know, every metric you can think of that's available right now is out there. Spray charts, it's filterable, it's sortable. It's really, really a cool resource. Um, and as we continue to develop new metrics and measurements, they'll be available through Baseball Savant. And I think in time, I think it's already a great resource, and I think in time that will become an even greater resource. You know, right now, like Baseball HQ is and, and Fangraphs and a lot of other great sites, uh, we expect Baseball Savant to be part of that conversation and a bigger part of that conversation going forward. Well, I sure hope so, because uh, the data revolution has been, in some quarters, derided as we're taking the humanity out of the game and all this kind of thing. I, you still hear that from time to time. And uh, I just don't get it, Corey. I, ha I have to say, what is wrong with b better understanding what you're looking at? I, I think that's, absol that's absolutely incorrect. It's backwards thinking, and frankly, it's, it's willful ignorance because every business in the world uses information to make better decisions, whether uh, it's a retail store deciding how much staff they need at different hours and different times of day uh, based on the you know, foot traffic they expect to have, how much inventory should a business maintain to satisfy their customers, military supply chains, how many blankets and pillows do I need on the airline. All of these things are based on information and data and every business uses it. But moreover, we're adding more humanity to the game. You know, when, when we look at StatCast, this is technology that tells us what the players do and understand what their skills are. We're learning more about their speed and their reaction and their quickness and their decision-making. Uh, and I think that gives you a much greater understanding of the players as, you know, as individual humans who are producing results as opposed to just looking at a line of stats and say, oh, he's a 300 hitter. We want to get past that and look at the skills that create those outcomes. So I think we're adding more humanity to the game in this sense. Yeah, that that's exactly my take on it. I, I remember when I first started watching baseball, a 300 batting average was considered like a holy grail of sorts, and still is to a certain extent, but... Over time, we started to learn that on-base percentage was actually more important, and Branch Rickey figured that out, what, 70 years ago or something like that. Just nobody was listening, or not, not a lot of people were listening. And gradually, we learned that if you go one, la one layer deeper, how many walks does a guy draw? How, how, how good is his eye at the plate? How good is he at rejecting pitches that he can't hit? These kind of things, which we figured out statistically, we're now being able to figure out by direct observation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said... We're able to observe and measure these things right now. So a lot of concepts that we've sort of always understood as baseball fans 
we can start to measure them right now and find out if we were right or wrong. So um, when we say so-and-so is a great base runner, well, what does it mean to be a great base runner? Does it mean he advances um, you know, going from first to third more successfully and more frequently than other runners, or he knows when not to go, or he runs a more, you know, a smoother curve as he's rounding second base. We'll be able to quantify these things now and, you know, start to drill down into skills, and then in time we'll understand how those skills produce results. So one simple example last year, you know, exit velocity is one of the first metrics that's come out of StatCast and become very popular because the harder you hit the ball, the better chance you have of a positive outcome, a hit, an extra base hit. Ryan Zimmerman came off the DL for the Nationals last summer and was hitting 210 or 220, really was struggling. But we were looking at his exit velocity, and it was, it was going through the ceiling. It was up there with the elite hitters. We think this guy is hitting the ball hard enough that the results are going to start to come. And sure enough, down the stretch in August and September, he was terrific because the skills were reflective of, of you know, great results, even though the results weren't there yet. Um, so that's the kind of thing we'll be able to look at and, and – learn more about the game and the players and understand where these results come from. The interpretation of all this stuff is really interesting as well. Uh, we used to have a stat that we used at Baseball HQ called hard hit ball data, but it was fairly subjective. I think it was determined by observers in the press box who said, yeah, that looked like or sounded hard or you know, seemed to be going really fast, so I'll call it that. And now we can quantify it much more accurately by saying it was going 105 miles an hour, 108 miles an hour, 99 miles an hour, whatever the case might be. Then the challenge, it seems to me, is to determine at what point is there an inflection? At what point is it 101 miles an hour that really starts to show um, higher hit rates, or is it 91 miles an hour? You know, th th those kind of questions I think are are still to be they're being asked, but they're still to be answered to a certain extent. Yeah, and and we're starting to learn some of that. So, for example, when it comes to exit velocity, in general, higher is better. Um, you know, hitting at 95 is better than 90, is better than 85, and so forth. But it also matters the angle at which you hit the ball and, and the direction, you know, on a zero to 90 degree angle from the third baseline to the first baseline. You hit a ball 100 miles an hour at a five degree launch angle at about, or a five degree launch uh, vector, you know, the, the horizontal, and maybe a 15 degree launch angle off the ground, that's a line drive right at the third baseman. Whereas if you hit it even a little slower but at a higher angle, now it's a blooper that goes over the third baseman's head. So, you know, Alan Nathan, who's a, you know, a baseball physicist at the University of Illinois, professor of physics, he's done a lot of research on this, and he calls that the donut hole, where sometimes you can hit it too hard and the ball stays up in the air and somebody's able to get to it. Sometimes you're better off hitting the ball a little bit softer, but in better, harder, you know, in general, harder is better. It's all very exciting. I want to move on to something else. This year is the 75th anniversary of Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. People say it's an unbreakable record. Uh, I think uh, we've had a couple of 25-ish sort of runs this year. Um, Jackie Bradley Jr., I think, just lost one. And for the 16th year, uh, you guys are launching a Beat the Streak game. And, of course, a lot of people have heard of this. But for those who haven't, uh, briefly explain how Beat the, Street, Beat the Streak works. Well, it's very simple. You come in every day, you pick a player, and if that player gets a hit, your streak continues. If he makes an out... Or, or doesn't get a hit in the course of the day, your streak ends and you get to start over. Um, it's painfully simple. It's very quick to play. And in literally hundreds of millions of individual streaks that have been started by fans over the course of the years, no one has yet caught Joe DiMaggio's 56-game streak. Um, when we started out, Greg Clayman, who's our, uh, our VP of product development, he came up with this idea back in 2001. And after working with some 
you know, the insurance company and some, you know, mathematical modelers and all this, they figured somebody would break the street, break the record within two years. And we're 16 years in and it still hasn't been done yet. And that just goes to show how amazing Tamagio's streak is that we've just got millions of new streaks every year being started in this game and no one's caught Dimaggio yet. And I should point out, if you do catch Dimaggio, you tend to get a nice payday. Yeah, it's uh, the prize this year is $5.6 million, which is a you know, pretty good incentive. Um, we actually have a guy right now uh, who's at 44. The all-time record in Beat the Streak is 49, which was set back in 2007. Uh, there's a guy who's at 44. He's been picking a lot of Jackie Bradley Jr. and Xander Bogarts. Um, so as long as those guys keep getting hits, uh, maybe he can keep creeping up. But, you know, 12 more games, that's still a long way to go. 44 was Pete Rose, wasn't it, the last guy to make a challenge? Yeah, Pete Rose, and I think uh, Willie Keeler had also done a 44. And then you had Molitor and Santiago and some other guys in the upper 30s. But, you know, it, it's really incredible when you think about it. 56 games is more than a third of the season. Um, and back then it was even a greater percentage. You know, to get a hit every day for a full third of the season, it's just astonishing. And sorry, did you say you pick one player or two? Did you or did you used to pick two? I seem to recall that there was a angle involved where you could take two guys, and if either of them got a hit, you you got to continue. Yeah, that's actually right. That's a recent change. So you, good job catching me on that one, Patrick. And and again, that's just making it easier and easier to build a streak, and still no one has caught Dimaggio. Um, we added a mulligan a couple of years ago, where if your streak ends between ten and fifteen games, you get a free pass. You get to continue your streak. So. Even with all of the, uh, you know, the, the, I don't want to say loopholes, but, you know, we've tried to, to, to tailor the rules to make it easier for people to build longer streaks because we want someone to win this money. Um, you know, it's been sitting there in the bank drawing interest, and we want to write someone a big check someday. Um, no one has won yet. And, again, it just it, it shows what a challenge the game is, and it's something you can play quickly, and it's a lot of fun. But, yeah, it's a challenge and, and just reflects the greatness of DiMaggio in that season. It was the same season that Ted Williams last hit 400 in the big leagues. I think he hit 406 in 1941. And uh, here's an idea for your product development, guys, and I'll take a small royalty in exchange for the idea. Uh, you, you pick a player every day, and in aggregate, you try to work up through a full season and you hit 400, you win. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we've, we've done something similar. We've talked about a lot of different variations where you can pick a lot of different things and build a lot of different streaks across different categories. Um, you know, can, one, one thing that we're kicking around, this is not my idea, and I hope I don't scoop anybody by saying this, you know, the record for strikeouts in a season by a pitcher is 383. Can you pick, you know, a certain number of pitchers within the same number of starts or innings who get to that 383? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways you can play this to try and defeat the great records in baseball history. Is ba is baseball or you guys? Uh, I know you have some baseball. Major League Baseball has some interest in some of the daily fantasy games. It, do you know anything about what b baseball's approach is or opinion is about its involvement in that kind of thing? Well, we have a partnership with DraftKings. Um, you know, the commissioner has said that he thinks he thinks DFS is legal. Um, we still have a partnership with them, and they're a good partner. So, um, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm a traditional fantasy guy, but I view DFS. Uh, as something that gets people into baseball and gets them engaged with baseball, so I think it's great. Um, and as long as the commissioner thinks that, and as long as it's legal, it'll continue to be that way. <laughs> well said, sir. <laughs> commissioner Manfred, if you're listening, Corey Schwartz, S-C-H-W. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, so I stand behind my commissioner, uh, tooth and nail. Uh, you mentioned BAMTEC a little uh, earlier. You guys have been operating this uh, uh, spin-off. You called it a subsidiary, and it handles all the technology services that Major League Baseball Advanced Media has been providing to non-baseball customers. Briefly talk about the services you're offering and, and who's using them. Well, the original focus of BAMTEC was on multimedia streaming. Um, you know, we have all the infrastructure that we've built to create MLB.TV, but be used for a lot of different things. So we do everything from ESPN3, March Madness Online, um, we do the WWE, um, we do the Glenn Beck channel. So really, anytime somebody wants to stream multimedia out to the Internet and out to users on mobile devices or, or wired devices, that's a service we can provide for them. It's been very successful. Um, I think BAM, you know, as an interested observer, and I'm a little bit biased, I think we are a leader in that respect. Um, but now BAM Tech is really branching out. I mentioned the NHL deal earlier. Um, we have their media rights or their digital rights to rebuild their website with them, to rebuild their mobile app and their, their, uh, you know, their NHL network channel. So BAM Tech is really growing out into, you know, really becoming a media company um, and providing all sorts of services to digital media partners. Um, and hopefully that'll that will continue to grow. I think, you know, again, I'm just speculating here. This is not me speaking as an employee, but just you know, a, a sports fan and a consumer. Consumer behavior is changing um, as far as consuming sports and and entertainment. Um, it's much more mobile. It's much more on demand as opposed to scheduled. And I think ultimately what our business is trying to do is is to keep up with that change in user behavior um, and be positioned to be successful in whatever that new. Uh, you know, new environment looks like five or ten years down the road even. You mentioned the NHL, and I believe they've taken an equity position in, in BAM Tech as a gesture of their commitment and their interest in making money, I suspect. Uh, but they clearly want to be involved. And then uh, I, I've also, because I'm up here in Canada and you see a lot of this in the papers, hockey is really getting into advanced statistics and advanced metrics in a way that would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago, much more quickly than baseball adopted, because baseball has that advantage of discrete events that you can track easily. Hockey a much more fluid game, but they're really ad, uh, embracing these advanced statistical methods and metrics. Are you guys participating in developing those kind of things, a stat cast for hockey, as it were? Uh, I would say that's a possibility. You know, certainly, you know, they have some challenges in being a fluid game, as you said, with real-time substitutions, but some of those challenges are very similar to what they face in basketball at the NBA, and they've successfully implemented their sport view system. Uh, and then, of course, in football, you have their next-gen stats program, you know, Zebra Technologies with the sensors and the sports and technology are converging, um, is that we want to get more information about the players and how they move on the field or on the, you know, in the arena, so to speak. I expect we'll see something like that in hockey at some point in the future. Um, I would expect we'll be involved in it. But, uh, you know, again, I'm an interested observer here, but understanding how the world is going, I think that's pretty likely. It suddenly dawns on me that having this kind of data available would sure be a, a boon to coaching. Absolutely. You know, when we talk about StatCast, as we said before, we think it's really about skills first and foremost. So if we see that one outfielder consistently has a more accurate or, more, uh, or, or quicker first step in reacting to a fly ball, we can compare those two players, and then it will be up to a coach to say, this is what this player is doing that he should be doing differently to look more like that player who has greater skill in that regard. Um, we do think there's a training opportunity here. Um, we do think that in time this will, you know, as this moves down to 
the minor leagues and amateur events and, and, and other things beyond Major League Baseball, that the data will become very valuable from a player development standpoint. Um, and I think ultimately the goal for the goal for any business, for any sport, and, and in baseball, is to put the best product on the field you can as often as you can. And I think smart clubs will use this data and other data sets that they can get their hands on to try and make better decisions about player acquisition and to help develop, you know, improve their player development and put better players on the field. It's it's really exciting, Corey. I envy you being at the eye of the storm, as it were. It must be a very exciting place to be. It's going to be very exciting for you, but it's also going to be exciting for anybody who watches baseball and possibly who watches hockey as well to see all of these data sets coming into our lives, being able to understand the games that we love and maybe help us love them a little bit more. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And, Corey, you recently tweeted after Jose Altuve had a pretty good stretch, to ask where he ranks when we're talking about the best player in the game. You suggested maybe Harper, Trout, Machado. Who else is on your list besides Jose Altuve, and where is Jose Altuve in your, in your view? Well, I, I think you got to put him right up there. You know, certainly top five. A couple of other guys that I thought about, um, in addition to Harper, Trout, Machado, you got Nolan Arenado uh, and Paul Goldschmidt. Those are the two others. You know, as great as Kershaw and Arietta are, I have a hard time putting a starting pitcher there simply because of the volume of work they do is so much smaller than an everyday offensive player. Um, but looking at Altuve, he's developed power, you know, double-digit home runs last year. He's already got nine home runs this year. You could see him hit approaching 20 this year, perhaps. Uh, he's an impact player on the bases in terms of volume and efficiency. Uh, he's an elite defensive player at second base. He won the gold glove last year, and you know now we'll start to get some stat cast metrics to support his abilities in the field. He's really a complete ball player. Um, you know, Harper had that unbelievable breakout season last year. Hasn't quite answered up to it again this year, but obviously he's in the discussion. Mike Trout, as we know, can do everything. Um, Manny Machado, especially now that he's playing shortstop, you know, one of the best defensive players at third base, now playing shortstop and a tremendous offensive player. And then Arenado and Goldschmidt, great two-way players there as well. So, you know, to me, Altuve is probably in the top five, if not even higher than that. Uh, when I look at BaseballHQ.com's player values for 5x5 five five games, and I was curious because of, of your tweet, Altuve is actually leading the, the, the whole of baseball, not counting Kershaw and, and pitchers. Then you got Mookie Betts, then you got Mike Trout, then you got Xander Bogarts, and uh, some of your guys are well down the list right now, and I know that will, has plenty of time to change, but to what extent do you think fantasy value in this way mirrors real value? Only to a certain degree. Um, you know, first of all, when I say best player in baseball, I'm thinking of a body of work over a couple of years. So that's why I think even though Harper's not having a great year this year, or I guess by his standards, what he sort of built up to last year and what he did last year has sort of catapulted him into that sort of, you know, that top tier of conversation. You know, Paul Goldschmidt is off to a pretty slow start this year by his standards. But again, he's got an MVP award and a body of work to suggest what kind of caliber of player he is. Um, the difference is that fantasy, most fantasy leagues, traditional fantasy leagues, 5x5, five five, use average, average instead of OBP. Um, so obviously a lot of that on-base ability of a guy like Paul Goldschmidt gets lost in that conversation. And it doesn't measure defense. You know, in traditional fantasy leagues, we don't care about defense at all unless it comes to figuring out earn-run averages. So, um, you know, Arenado, an elite defensive player at third base, Altuve, Trout, great, great defensive players. So, you know, when I say best player in baseball, I'm making a, a very distinct statement there 
as best player in fantasy baseball. So if we use Harper, Trout, Machado, Altuve, and Goldschmidt, just to say the top five, and Arenado, I'll throw him in. Uh, who do you think is the likeliest next guy to join that that crowd and the next guy to leave that crowd? Well, you, you mentioned Mookie Betts. Um, you know, I, I had him in some fantasy leagues last year. Unfortunately, not enough of those leagues this year. But the, his power development has really been surprising to me. I thought he'd be like a 15 to 20 homer guy just because of his size. But like Dustin Pedroia before him, Betts has really t- learned to, you know, to find balls he can drive, to take advantage of the ballpark. He's really become a fantastic all-around player. So uh, I think he's moving into that next tier. I think Xander Bogarts is moving into that next tier. You know, as far as guys dropping out, you know, probably Goldschmidt is the one who I think is most likely to drop out the soonest because as a first baseman, his ability to be an impact defensive player is limited compared to the other players. Um, that's not a knock on Goldschmidt. It's just the way of the world that for someone to move up, someone must be moving down. Um, but Betts and Bogarts, I mean, two phenomenal players. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer that the game is always getting better, um, that you're always seeing greater and greater players overall coming into the game. Um, you know, I mentioned Corey Seager earlier, who I have on a lot of my teams. You know, here's a, a 21 or 22-year-old shortstop who's hitting with power and getting on base. And you have, you know, Trevor Story hitting all those home runs in Colorado and Aledmus Diaz in, in, in St. Louis. I mean, we're seeing this tremendous wave of young players, and that's just one position in one league. So it, it's nice to have to decide who we think are the best players because there's, a, there's enough good options to choose from. Makes for good arguments, and that's half the fun of following any sport, I think. Uh, a discussion has broken out among some of the managers at Tout Wars, Corey, about the proper role of non-closer relief pitchers, middle relievers, uh, setup guys, those kind of things. And what they're asking is whether the rules of the game should be tweaked or adjusted to encourage or require owners to roster these setup guys, middlemen, and so forth. What do you think of that proposition? I'm not a fan of that right now. You know, again, most people still play traditional 5x5, five five, I believe. Um, and in 5x5, five five, you need nine pitchers, and they can be anything you want. Um, you know, roles tend to shift a little bit more frequently among pitchers. You know, maybe not as much now as they used to in the past, but, you know, a closer can get demoted to middle relief. A guy who's a middle reliever can become a setup guy. You know, um, you, know you can have a guy who's a, who's a middle reliever who makes a couple of spot starts. Erasmo Ramirez, we thought, would be the Rays' fifth starter, and now he's become one of their top setup guys. So I like the notion of you get nine pitchers, and these are the categories you have to compete in, the five categories you have to compete in, and then it's up to you to figure out how to structure them. You know, Darren O'Day is not a closer, but he's an incredibly valuable reliever. Dylan Betances, uh, Michael Feliz in Houston, 37 strikeouts uh, and four wins out of the bullpen already. So um, I don't like the notion of, of forcing roster structure onto pitching staffs. In general, Corey, how important do you think it is that we set up our fantasy rosters so that they look as much as they can like real baseball rosters? I don't think it is. I think that's why it's called fantasy baseball. You know, let's remember that when the founding fathers created the, the you know the basic four by four categories back in 1979, and then eventually expanded it to 1980, um, they were using number one only the stats that were available in box scores because they were doing this by looking up stats in newspapers. Uh, and number two, they were basing things on the understanding of the day of what made a player a good player. We thought closers who had 35 saves were really super valuable. Um, and now we know that, um, you know, that's really a usage-based stat as much as it's a performance-based stat. Um, you know, we used to see RBIs being a big deal. And in fantasy, RBIs are a big deal. But in real baseball, they're not really because they're heavily team-dependent and situation-dependent. Um, 
So I don't have a problem with the traditional five-by-five five categories because it's given us a, a language we can all speak and understand together. But I think if you were starting fantasy baseball from scratch today, um, you probably would use very, very different categories than the traditional five-by-five. Five. Okay, what ones would you use? <laughs> well, you know, I would get away, for, I would get away with... Uh, get away from pitcher wins. I would get away from RBIs. I would get away from runs. I would use more rate-based stats. Uh, you know, if I were going to use counting stats because you want to emphasize playing time, I'd probably use total bases, uh, things of that nature, rather than rather than home runs or RBIs. Certainly, net steals rather than just uh, you know total steals. Uh, you know, maybe net wins rather than just wins, things of that nature. Strikeout rate in addition to total strikeouts because total strikeouts you can goose just by volume. But we know today that strikeout rates continue to get higher. So you want a pitching staff that has a higher strikeout rate. And you'd probably find a way to fit defense in there a little bit more than we have right now. I've always thought, uh, I, I wrote a thing about this actually, I've always thought that the win stat was the weakest stat of the bunch because it's so capricious. And I understand the argument, and in fact I've made this argument, that part of the fun of playing the game is that it is not as predictable as some people would like it to be in the same sense that we don't go to the horse race track and just bet on the outcome based on the stats in the form chart. We actually watch the horses run, and there's lots of things that can happen during a horse race that affects that race. And similarly, wins provides that certain unpredictability that makes the game, I think, a little more interesting. Having said all that, I think we should probably be looking more at something like uh, the Nolan Ryan version of quality starts, seven innings, three earned runs, something like that. But uh, overall, I like the way it is now for that unpredictability reason that, you know, some guy gets a lot of RBIs in a year because he happens to hit in a good lineup. Well, you should have thought of that. Well, you know, I partially agree with that. I do think that, you know, fantasy baseball, like any other endeavor, uh, is a game of skill. And, you know, as a fantasy baseball competitor, I want to show that I'm better at this endeavor than, than the other guys I'm competing against or the other gals I'm competing against. Um, so while things like RBIs and, and, and runs scored and wins are very much situational dependent, there is a skill in finding players who are likely to be more successful in that regard. You look for hitters in good lineups, in good ballparks. Yep. Um, you look for pitchers in good ballparks. You avoid Rockies pitchers. You avoid Padres hitters, things of that nature. Um, so certainly the difference between 90 RBIs and 100, 110 RBIs might be a little bit fluky, might be a little bit capricious. But if you think a guy is, is, you know, is a good hitter and he's in a good situation, odds are he'll probably be more likely to have more RBIs than someone else. And that's the kind of player you'll you will pursue. Yeah, and I agree entirely. And I, and I think that the uh, the idea is that sometimes you're going to be right, and sometimes fate is going to intervene, and you're not going to be right. And of course, there's injuries that affect us all equally. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from MLBAM. And uh, do you guys pronounce it MLBAM or how do you pronounce it? Uh, MLBAM is sort of the shorthand for the company name, but we tend to go by MLB.com because that's really the brand that people know. Okay. But either fits. You tweeted the other night that something in a game reminds us that players and managers care every bit about stats as much as the stat heads do. They're just not always the same stats. What was the incident that inspired that comment? <laughs> well, I don't want to give too many details because I don't want to sound like I'm, uh, I'm being too critical of any manager or player, but you know, how many times have we seen a pitcher really getting roughed up, but he's got a big lead early and they're just trying to get him through five innings to qualify for that win? Um, and I, here's one specific example that I can use because the player's no longer active. I remember one year Bobby Abreu with the Yankees, um, bases loaded one out in the late innings of a game late in the season, maybe even the last day of the season. 
Uh, he hit into a force out and narrowly beat the throw to avoid the double play, and by doing so, got an RBI that was his 100th RBI of the season. Um, and I remember vividly, uh, you know, on the broadcast, them clip, you know, showing a clip uh, cutting away to the Yankees' dugout, and all of his teammates were on the top row of the dugout, you know, cheering for him because he reached 100 RBIs. You and I know that 100 RBIs, you know, as a reflection of player skill, are not as valuable as OBP or OPS or WAR or whatever. But those guys really, really cared that Abreu got that hundredth RBI. Um, so players care about stats, but they tend to care more about the traditional stats, what we would call the five by five stats, rather than sort of the contemporary metrics of OBP or WAR or things of that nature. So whenever someone accuses, you know, says you're a stat head, you all you care about is stats. I'm like, yeah. So are you, just not the same ones. And for ball players, especially stats, uh, often equal paydays, and uh, that that really encourages interest as well. Having said all that, though, Corey, more and more players are coming out and and going on the record as being really interested, really engaged in the more modern performance metrics. Where do you think the players and managers and us overlap in that regard? Well, I don't I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, as you said. Uh, you know, driving in 100 runs or, or hitting 300 or winning 20 games or whatever it may be is still a shorthand that means something um, in terms of how we appreciate the players and in terms of how they get compensated. Uh, not only in, uh, you know, all-star game appearances and, and, and endorsements and things of that nature, um, but by the same token, there are plenty of players, as you said, who do use the advanced metrics to understand what things they can do to improve their performance. Um, you know, they look at the, you know, the pitch FX data and see if their pitches are moving in a certain way. I re- read a really long interview with Rich Hill recently from the A's talking about how he gets a lot of spin on his curveball and how he tries to locate it to uh, create more deception against the hitters. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, this is a generational thing as well. You know, you and I are, are older than probably every player in Major League Baseball. The next wave of players that are coming up, they'll never have known a, a time when this type of data wasn't available. Uh, and I would expect that more and more players will avail themselves of this data to learn more about their performance and how they can how they can improve it. So, um, you know, the traditional stats are, are shorthand for what goes on the back of the baseball card, but certainly the advanced metrics speak to performance, and players are always trying to improve their performance. And we come back to coaching uh, in that same way, and all the video that they have the advantage of using, especially the hitters. Uh, Time after time, when you're watching a ball game nowadays, they'll they'll talk about the hitter getting ready for his at bat by going underneath the stands into the locker room and into the video area and working with the video tech to say, okay, what's this guy throw? Especially if they've changed pitchers, have I had an at bat against him? And and they get a first hand look at all that kind of stuff right in, in real time. And I guess uh, a lot of that's going to be powered by you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're very involved in, in providing data to the clubs right now, and, and I think we'll continue to see more and more data available to clubs as games are going on. Uh, and I think the commissioner's made pretty clear that he views technology you know, in the dugouts and on the field as being a good thing. So I, I expect we'll continue to see some movement there, although I'll defer to what, what his plans are as opposed to what I think. Um, but ultimately, again, you know, the players have to play. The players have to perform. Um, you can know with pretty much absolute certainty Mariano Rivera is going to throw you nothing but cutters, and you still have to hit him, and you still can't hit him. Uh, so data and information helps you make decisions, prepare, train, whatever it may be, but the players still have to go out and play, uh, and, I, and that will never change that I can see. 
And that's going to separate the great players from the good players, from the guys who are hanging around marginal players, is going to be just that. Everybody has the information advantage that only a few people used to have because of their innate gifts. I think of stories of Barry Bonds sitting on the bench and yelling out what the pitch was even before it left the pitcher's hand, and he was always right, which is a huge advantage to, to him when he's out there and the rookies are coming back going, how did you know that? And he just, you know, I've been around this game a long time. Now they can all learn that by looking at video and so forth, but very, very, very few of them are ever going to hit 70 home runs in a season. <laughs> Arguably none of them. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the players have to play. That's the part of the game that has been consistent over 150 years now of, of professional baseball uh, and will always be the same. You know, players throughout history have used information to prepare. Now they just have more information and perhaps better information and more detailed information. But all of that information only takes you up to the white lines. You still have to go out and perform. Uh, and ultimately, as you said, it'll be the players who are able to perform who will be the successful ones. You know, look, some guys are look are just, I see the ball, I hit the ball. And they don't have that same level of, of data or information interest, but they're still able to succeed. Um, you know, I don't think more information is a bad thing, but there are many different ways to be successful. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, there are hitters especially who've said, I don't want to know what the pitch is. I don't want to know what this guy throws. I want to react to what he throws because that's what I've always done. And and in fact, I was watching a game the other night and the announcers were talking about the ability to steal the sign with because you have a runner on second and pass that information quickly on to the, uh, to the hitter. And a lot of hitters refuse to to take the information they tell the the first base coach or whoever the relay guy is don't tell me i don't want to know because it just messes them up to know somehow and they'd rather just react yeah and you think about it too you know let's talk about pitch recognition there are very very few pitchers in baseball who don't throw at least two pitches you know right now you've got kenley jansen who throws you know almost exclusively cutters or oldest chapman throws almost exclusively fastballs though he'll mix in a slider maybe even a change up once in a while so even if you say all right there's a 75% probability that I'm going to see a slider or a fastball in this situation. Well, that means there's a 25% chance you're going to see something else. And one way or the other, you've got to be prepared to hit that pitch that the pitcher throws. So understanding the probabilities, I think, is valuable, but it doesn't mean you say, I'm only going to sit, swing at a slider, or I'm only going to, uh, you know, be prepared to face one type of thing. You may condition yourself a little bit to, all right, I'm expecting to see a slider, so maybe I recognize it a little bit faster. But if you're expecting a slider, you should also know very quickly, hey, wait a second, that's not a slider. You know, I don't see the red dot, or I don't see the spin that I would look for in a slider. Um, so again, the information is helpful from understanding tendencies and creating probabilities, but to put all the eggs into that one basket is very dangerous because you know, we always joke around, we say if there's a 1% probability of something happening and it happens, that doesn't break your model, that proves your model. Um, so you have to be prepared for any, you know, any potential scenario. The great Henry Aaron, uh, I remember reading his autobiography back when he was just out of finished with the with the game, and uh, one of the things I remember seeing in in the book was somebody had asked him like, "How do you prepare for an at bat? What are you looking for when you stand up there?" And he said, "Every pitch of his career, he looked for a curveball because he knew they couldn't throw the fastball past him, and so he was always able to react." Yeah, and a lot of hitters will say, you know, it's you know, I I prepare for the curveball and then react and adjust to the fastball because, as you said, it's coming straight and it's probably easier to recognize, whereas the off-speed pitch, you're more likely to be out in front and sort of blow up your timing. So, But I, I guess probably every hitter is a little bit different based on what they're comfortable hitting 
and what their ability is to you know to recognize and adjust to the pitch. Just before we leave all of this, uh, we get enmeshed in these uh, in these statistical things, especially if you're playing um, daily games. Uh, I play very very infrequently in the Tout Wars. Um, there's a little uh, daily game that they have going, and you get really. It, it's a very intensely analytical exercise for me, and it's almost a relief to then sit down and watch a game and just marvel at how good these guys are at what they're doing, whether they're amassing fantasy points for you or not. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, look, I'm I'm a baseball fan. I like watching baseball, so you know, I root for I root for my fantasy players. Um, you know, I root for teams where I have friends who work in the front offices and the PR departments and so forth. Um, but really, I just like to watch baseball. And if I'm at home on, what is today, Thursday, I'll put on whatever game is on. Uh, I'll flip channels, you know, because I'm in New York, I see a lot of Mets and Yankees, but uh, I'll watch whatever's on. I'll watch games on, on my phone. Here in the office, if there are day games on, I'll admit we have the TVs on, and maybe we're peeking up at the TVs a little bit more than we should when we should be working. Um, but it's, it's a great game, and it's fun to watch, and, and that's what's really exciting for me. Uh, I couldn't agree more with this with this exemption. If one of my fantasy pitchers is pitching, I will watch that game. I just I like I like seeing him not only because I'm I've got a rooting interest, but I also want to be able to watch him to see is he struggling? Does he look okay? Uh, I don't I don't pretend to be a scout, but if he seems to be walking a lot of guys, or you know. It's, that shows up in the statistical record, but more like if he's always behind, you know, because he's always 2-0 to, to, to start the at-bat, or he's always 3-1, and he's always having to come in. That, to me, is a warning sign, even if he's succeeding statistically, that maybe everything is not right. I think there's value in doing that kind of obser- observing, even if you're not a trained scout. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, on the, the other side of that coin, though, is that watching your own starting pitchers can be nerve-wracking. <laughs> it is that. Hitters... Four of the five categories are positive categories. So, you know, something good, there's always the opportunity for something good to happen, and you're focused on the goodness happening. With pitchers, 50% of their categories, ERA and WHIP, are actually negative categories when you think about it. Um, they have to succeed, otherwise you get punished. The ERA and the WHIP go up. So it's, it's very nerve-wracking to watch your starting pitcher, pitchers going. You always feel like you're sort of, uh, you know, dancing between the raindrops and trying to avoid disaster, unless you're talking about Kershaw and Arietta. Um, but I, you know, I have Drew Smiley on a lot of teams, and you know, I'm watching the play-by-play of the game against the Royals the other day, and just watching all these hits rack up, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Where on a bad day, your hitter goes 0 for 4, and then you move on to tomorrow. But now I've got to wait another five days for Smiley to try and not have a negative outcome again. It's a uh, it's it, pitching is nerve-wracking, man. <laughs> yes, it is, and and that's what makes it fun. Like I said before. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from MLB.com. And, uh, Corey, during the season, we ask our experts to talk about their studs and duds for the balance of the way. Any rationale works, uh, anything that floats your boat as far as whether a guy's a stud or a dud. But basically the question is, would you want him on your roster from here to the end? Uh, let's start with the hitters in the American League. Who's a stud hitter, a guy you'd really like to have on your roster? Uh, Eric Hosmer. You know, I think, uh, you know, here's a here's a a young hitter with an elite pedigree who's finally coming into his own. He's, he's been a good hitter for a couple of years. Now you're seeing the power developing. Um, you know, he's hitting for a higher average. He's really emerging into that hitter we thought all along that he could be. And um, I have him on one team, and not coincidentally, it's the team I'm in first place. 
Seems like we've been waiting for Eric Hosmer for a while, but actually he's been pretty good for quite a while. Now he's moving up, I think, into towards greatness, and it's really fun to watch. Uh, in the National League, who's a stud hitter like Eric Hosmer is in the American for you? Oh, Gregory Polanco. Um, you know, even younger than Hosmer and, and arguably having an even better season. Another guy who, was, who had a great pedigree, uh, who kind of held his own for the first, his first season and a half in the majors, but now you're really seeing him learn how to drive the ball um, he's always had the body and the size, you know, 6'5", 230 to hit for power. But now you're seeing him find the pitches and the opportunities where he can really drive the ball. And I just have to say, you know, not specific to Polanco, I love what Clint Hurdle does with that lineup in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, other than Jason and McCutcheon sort of being settled into the top two spots, he really, you know, he tweaks the lineup every day based on what the matchup is and, and you know, what, what type of pitcher they're facing and what type of lineup he's got on the field. So we've seen Polanco bat everywhere from third to sixth or seventh, uh, but batting in the middle of the order and his developing power have created a lot of RBI opportunities for him. So um, it's really fun to see that player development, and it's a really interesting team to watch. They are an interesting team to watch. Of course, they're on the forefront of a lot of the shifting defensively as well. They, they have a tremendous pitching coach who's made miracles out of some guys you wouldn't have expected miracles from. You mentioned that uh, McCutcheon has been hitting second for Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, Josh Donaldson, the MVP, probably the best hitter in Toronto, is hitting second there. There's one of the outgrowths of the statistical movement has been this idea that you should bat your best hitter second rather than third. Are you seeing that a lot? Yeah, we're definitely seeing that a lot more. You know, Joey Votto in Cincinnati is another one that we see him batting second. Uh, you know, we see Mike Trout generally occupying the number two hole uh, with the Angels, or, or at least times. You know, but it's also, you know, Joe Sheehan, who's, who's, if you're not subscribing to the Joe Sheehan newsletter, I highly recommend it. And I apologize, Patrick, for plugging someone else's stuff on your guy's show. Um, but Joe points out that the codicil to that is if you're having your quote-unquote best hitter hitting second, that's when you really should have your pitcher hitting eighth. Because the idea of having the best hitter hitting second, um, number one, is to get him more plate appearances, but number two, get more plate appearances with runners on base after you flip the lineup the first time. That's tied into having the pitcher hitting eighth, so after the first time through the order, your number two hitter effectively becomes your number three hitter, because you have the nine hitter and the one hitter in front of him. Um, so when you see a team with their pitcher batting ninth and their quote-unquote best hitter hitting second, at least in the NL, you know, that's a team that's, that's not going all the way on that solution, so to speak. And even in the American League, uh, sometimes you'll see that number two hole with the best hitter in it, but the nine hole is their worst hitter, and, and really he should the worst hitter should be in the eighth spot for the reasons that Joe mentioned. And by the way, you want to plug Joe, Joe Sheehan's baseball newsletter on this podcast, feel free, because I do it all the time. Uh, sticking with hitters in the American League, who's a dud uh, guy you're suspicious of you don't want on your roster? Well, I, I try and be a glass-half-full guy, so I'm going to talk about dud players that I still am confident in. Uh, but dud so far, and Chase Headley with the Yankees, um, you know, he, his month of April was just absolutely horrendous. But very quietly, he was decent in the month of May, had a, an OPS a little under 800, three homers and three steals over the course of the month. And basically, other than that one insane year he had in San Diego, you know, Headley did in May what he's done for the rest of his career. Uh, you know, double, you know, double, double homers and steals, decent, you know, rate stats. Um, that Yankees lineup, though, has a lot of holes. It's got a lot of age and a lot of injury, uh, and that will drag down Headley's value. But he's a guy that you can get almost for nothing probably in most leagues and I think is, is a decent player still. And who's a dud hitter in the National League? Uh, Derek Norris of the Padres. Um, you know, he, he strikes out more than you, know, than you would like to see. He doesn't walk as much as you have seen in the past, but he's got a two fifteen batting average on balls in play, and his average exit velocity is about 91 miles an hour, which is above average. 
So, you know, I don't think he's going to be a 300 hitter, but he should be a 250 or 260 hitter. Um, and he should be able to hit for some power. So five homers from a catcher at this point in the season is actually pretty decent. He scored 20 runs uh, because when he's been able to get on, he's been scoring some runs. I think that batting average will continue to go up, and there's a really good buy-low opportunity here. You mentioned that a 91-mile-an-hour exit velocity is uh, above average. What is average? Average right now is a little over 89, I believe. Um, So generally, you know, the best hitters, you know, Mike, sorry, Giancarlo Stanton, when he's healthy, uh, the elite guys will average, you know, 94, 95, 96. Anything above 90 is really good. To me, that's like a 270 hitter, you know, a, a, you know, a 90 exit velocity. And what's an elite? What, what, uh, how often do you see over 100, for instance? Well, individual batted balls over 100 is not terribly uncommon, but it's the ability to do that consistently and maintain that high average uh, that's very difficult. So Stanton last year, I think, might have touched 120, 119 a couple of times. Um, you know, in an individual game, you'll see a hitter probably hit one 110 or 111 miles an hour, probably once a game. Um, but on average, you know, again, you've got to include the weak grounders and the pop-ups and all that other stuff, and that's how you end up with an average of, you know, 94, 95, 96. That's where the top guys will, will hang out. Is anybody keeping track of pitchers who don't give up a lot of that kind of high-velocity exit velocity? Oh, yeah, that's something you can readily find on Baseball Savant, uh, you know, exit velocity leaders for pitchers. Um, you know, we're going to continue to work with Darren to build out that site so you can look at by pitch type, by pitch count, by situation, uh, look at trends, look at all kinds of stuff. You know, as I said, you know, a couple of times earlier, Patrick, that you know, we really think that StatCast is most important when talking about skills. You know, the, the metrics and the measurements are reflections of skill as opposed to just counting up the home runs and the RBIs. So when we see a pitcher giving up a really low exit velocity on a certain pitch type, we can infer a greater skill in throwing that pitch, and then we start to dig in a little bit more and try and understand why. Like, uh, you know, we mentioned Rich Hill with his curveball, really, really high spin rate on that curveball, and also works a lot to create deception pitching off his fastball with it. Um, so that, I think these are things that we'll continue to learn as the years go along. Corey Schwartz's hitters, the AL stud is Eric Hosmer of the Royals, National League stud Gregory Polanco of Pittsburgh, his dud hitter Chase Headley of the Yankees in the American League and Derek Norris of San Diego in the National League, but he likes them both as potential buy lows. Let's move on to the mound, Corey, in the American League. Who's a stud pitcher you like? Danny Salazar. Uh, you know, I, I understand all the caveats about Danny Salazar, that he walks too many and he throws too many pitches. Uh, you know, even some of his, his rate stats, you know, his BABIP and home run to fly ball rate are a little bit ruck, lucky right now. But I think what we're really seeing is the development of a truly elite pitcher. Um, who's got three pitches that he can use as wipeout pitches, a high 90s fastball, a slider, and a changeup. Um, you know, good pitcher's park on the whole, good defense behind him, and as he develops experience and maturity, I think the command will improve, and then you'll really see him turn into something special. So um, the league I'm in first, I actually traded him away, not because I wanted to, but I used him to get some offensive upgrades. Um, but I think he's a guy who's really going to emerge as this year goes along, and next year is one of the top pitchers in the American League. I was going to ask you, do you think that can happen this year? Well, you know, he's still refining his command. His walk rate is up a little bit from where it was last year to the point where it's, you know, it's not not good. It needs to be better. Uh, And as a result of that, he's not able to go deep into games consistently. You know, once he is able to consistently throw all of those good pitches around the edges of the strike zone, which is the difference between control and command, you know, that's where hitters will have to offer it that stuff a lot more. You'll see the strikeouts go up again. You'll see the walks come down. You'll see him going even deeper into games, and that's when I think he'll really emerge as an elite guy. In the National League, who's a stud pitcher? 
Johnny Cueto, you know, every year we forget about Johnny Cueto, and here he is, what, 8-1, and one, he's in the top five in the league in ERA, doesn't walk anybody, doesn't get hurt by the home runs, and again, he's pitching in a terrific pitcher's park, really good team around him in every respect. The Giants are just a solid team all around. Um, I guess it's a case where we know Cueto's an elite guy, and yet he's always forgotten when we're having the conversations about the elite guys. You know, we don't talk about Kershaw and Arietta and Cueto. You know, he's an afterthought, and he shouldn't be. He's a phenomenal pitcher. And I think this is an example where in the offseason when you're looking at player movement and trying to decide on guys like Cueto as they move coming off, you know, questionable performance in the playoffs, he was a little rough for the Royals. You got to look at the organization too. And if you trust the San Francisco organization, as you should, in my opinion, you have to say to yourself, I'm giving Johnny Cueto coming into that situation. I think you need to give him a little boost in your estimation because a really good organization paid money to bring this guy aboard. Right. And, you know, we, we say that about the A's a lot. You know, if Billy Bean likes a guy, maybe we should take a closer look. You know, no one was really thinking much about Danny Valencia, and he's been one of the best hitters in baseball over the last calendar year. Um, you know, they brought back uh, Jed Lowry. He's having a very good year as an OBP guy. Not a big home run, you know, power hitter, but he gets on base a lot. You know, you, you know they traded for Chris Davis, again, a guy who's going to strike out a lot and not draw the walks, but leading the league in home runs or right near the top. So there are organizations, as you said, that, you, you know, you want to consider to be the finger quote smart organizations and, and pay closer attention when they make a move. In the American League, who's a pitcher you look at as a dud? Well, this is probably the one guy I'm, I'm most concerned about of everybody we mentioned, Drew Smiley, who I talked about earlier, uh, was phenomenal in April, and he was absolutely terrible in May. Um, you know, His velocity was down across the board. He didn't command his pitches very well, and he started relying very heavily on his four-seam fastball at the expense of his, uh, you know, his cutter, slider, whatever you call that weird pitch he throws, and his changeup. And the results, of course, were terrible. So um, you know, there may be a little bit of an approach issue here as opposed to the stuff, but the decline in velocity and the fact that he's never been healthy for a full season are big concerns for me. So as I said, I try and be optimistic about this, and I have Smiley on, on a couple of teams, um, but this is one where I really do have some concern. Combined slider and cutter, call it a slutter. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. Like he's he's got a very weird repertoire. And finally, how about the National League a dud pitcher? Matt Harvey, you know, uh, here in New York, I can tell you everybody's upset and unhappy with Matt Harvey, but his last time out, he looked phenomenal. Uh his velocity was back up, he was commanding better. You know, one of the things that I'm a big believer that command is more important than velocity. But by the same token, a change in velocity is very important. And when you see a guy going from throwing 97 or 98 to 95 or 96, that's still elite velocity, but it's the change that the pitcher has to adjust to. And I don't think Harvey was adjusting to it very well early in the season. He wasn't commanding very well. Uh, but we saw him bounce back pretty well last time out. So as long as he's healthy, I think he'll get better, and I think there's a buy-low opportunity here. Both Drew Smiley and Matt Harvey coming off uh, significant surgeries. For Of course, Matt Harvey had Tommy John. Drew Smiley had the shoulder surgery. When you see accomplished pitchers like these guys all of a sudden start to struggle, how worried do you get that there's something physically wrong post, uh, post-operatively? Well, you know, I'm generally not as concerned about the post-op guys as I am the guys that you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, you know, in Harvey's case, I wouldn't say Tommy John surgery is routine by any means, but it's certainly frequent and common enough in baseball that, you know, the recovery timelines and, and you know, the, the, the curve, if you will, the recovery curve, if you will, is fairly predictable. Um, you know, it's been said that velocity comes back before command, so seeing Harvey having trouble commanding uh, his pitches at times, 
isn't as unexpected. Uh, but seeing the velocity there, and, and I do believe he's healthy now, I think he'll continue to improve. You know, Smiley is the guy that concerns me, as I said. I'm not sure he had surgery. I think he might have opted for the rehab route or maybe just a minor arthroscopic surgery. But, you know, shoulder is a little bit more unpredictable than elbows. Uh, so that's another area of concern I have. Boy, I just keep giving you all these area of concerns, but saying, no, buy low, buy low. Maybe I should listen to myself a little more. Yeah. Well, sometimes the heart overrules the head. Uh, right. You have to have fun in this game. Absolutely. And you have to take chances. A big part of it, uh, I said years ago, there was a guy who worked for Baseball HQ. His name was John Bernson. And uh, we were arguing or discussing or debating how you need to manage your roster. And he said that this whole idea that your top guys are the ones who don't have risk and the middle guys, he said, they're all risky. And the, and the question is, how much risk are you willing to absorb? And his argument was, you should take on more than your competitors do. You might flame out, but you can't win playing it safe down the middle because a safe guy tends not to overperform. Right, and I got you know I heard a lot of that attitude when I was doing NFBC, which I haven't done in a couple of years. Uh, but you would see one team in every draft that would take you know whoever you think of as a second round player, this team would take in the first round, and he'd take a third round player in the second round, so to speak, you know, based on expected value. With the notion being that look, I'm if I'm going to come in fifth or seventh in this league, you know. Let me do it with guys who are upsiders, you know, who are potential exploders. Whereas if I'm targeting fifth place, I'll just take a bunch of guys that are known commodities. You know, you want to err on the side of upside risk. But the problem in doing that is that, you know, when you push up the second rounder to the first round and the third rounder to the second and so forth, what you're effectively doing is forfeiting a pick, if you will, and relying on all of those guys to come together at the same time. When it does happen, it's amazing. But you do need some guys to create a baseline of, you know, sort of common, you know, common expectations. Like I mentioned Kyle Seeger, um, you know, is one guy that I have on a lot of teams this year because I thought he had a really high floor but still some room for growth. But if the growth didn't come, he's still going to hit 270 with 25 homers. Corey, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep track of Corey Schwartz. Oh, thanks very much, Patrick. Uh, always great to talk to you. I'm on uh, Twitter at Schwartzstops. And I would also encourage everybody to follow at Fantasy411 on Twitter. Uh, Fred Zinke and the whole uh, fantasy team tweet on that account, and they do awesome stuff. So uh, it's not just me. I'm a small cog in the big machine, and I encourage everybody to check out Fantasy411 on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks, Corey. We'll talk to you again later on. All right, Patrick. Take care. Good luck this season. Thank you. Uh, Corey Schwartz is VP and Director of Stats at MLB.com. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week in the GM's office column, Ray Murphy has a trade negotiation workshop looking at two trades he made recently in experts leagues. Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation column looks at Johnny Cueto, Joe Ross, Gordon Beckham, and other players. And in our skills columns, analysts are looking at base performance value leaders and 2016 base performance indicators. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, full team coverage, performance validation, and news coverage as well as minor league scouting. Then, of course, there are also the projections and other roster management tools that you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. 
Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on San Diego outfield prospect Hunter Renfro is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. San Diego Powder fans have had little to cheer about in 2016. The club is marred in last place in the NL West and seems on the verge of yet another rebuild. Long term, however, the Padres have some interesting players who should be ready to make an impact in the majors soon. One player who looks ready now is outfield prospect Hunter Renfro. The 24-year-old Renfro was the club's first-round pick in 2013 after a standout career at Mississippi State. Renfro has good bat speed and plus raw power and has hit at least 20 home runs in the past two seasons. He can be overly pull conscious and has significant swing and miss to his game, but the raw power is undeniable. He moves well defensively with a strong arm, but speed isn't going to be a big part of his game in the majors. Renfro is in the midst of his best season as a pro and will likely be up by the end of the month. Through 49 games, Renfro is hitting 317 with a 340 on base percentage and a very impressive 600 slugging percentage. He has 16 doubles and 12 home runs. He's drawn just 7 walks to go with 37 strikeouts, but he's actually making more consistent contact than he did last year. Fantasy owners hunting for power in NL-only formats should definitely keep an eye on Renfro and be prepared to put in an aggressive fab bid once he is called up. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage, looking at prospects like Washington shortstop Trey Turner, Seattle right-handed pitcher Cody Martin, Milwaukee right-hander Jacob Barnes, and a bunch of other call-ups. And in the Eyes Have It column, Chris Blessing is on the road again to check out Cincinnati middle infield prospect Alex Blandino, Brewers catching prospect Jacob Nottingham, some Minnesota pitching prospects, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at Pittsburgh's pair of elite pitching prospects and wonder if we might soon see a new catcher in Arizona. Here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. It's that time of year again as Super 2 deadlines are looming and prospect watchers and keeper league owners are eagerly awaiting the call-ups of their top minor leaguers. This is especially the case in Pittsburgh, where two of the top pitching prospects in the minors, Jamison Tyon and Tyler Glasnow, are both seemingly on the cusp of call-ups. Pittsburgh could certainly use the help, as four-fifths of their current starting rotation have ERAs north of four. Jeff Locke and John Neese particularly seem closest to the chopping block, given their mediocre skills. We rank Glasnow and Tyon one and four, respectively, in Pittsburgh's system entering the season, and both have dominated hitters at AAA Indianapolis. Glasnow has 72 strikeouts in just 61 innings to go with a 207 ERA through his first 11 starts. Glasnow has walked 29 hitters this season, which comes out to a control rate of 4.3 walks per nine innings, but his ability to miss bats is certainly a testament to his major long-term upside. 
Tyon doesn't quite have the elite strikeout total that Glass now does, but he still punched out 54 hitters in his first 55 innings so far this season. The thing with Tyon, though, has been his impeccable control. He's allowed just five walks all year. Tyon sports a 179 ERA through his first nine outings. Both Tyon and Glass now are likely to be called up imminently as they both have little left to prove in the minors. Comparing the two is really just splitting hairs, but if you have room to just roster one guy, I'd go with Tyon given his excellent control compared to Glass now's elevated walk rate. If you have room to stash both, even in medium-sized mixed leagues, go ahead and roster both Tyon and Glass now. Julio Urias has shown us that even the best pitching prospects don't immediately succeed at the big league level, but Tyon and Glass now have as good a shot as any. We head to Arizona now where there may be a changing of the guard behind the dish. Wellington Castillo has been entrenched as the club's starting catcher since last season, but he hit just two forty three with one home run in all of May. Wellington has plenty of power, but he's hitting fewer fly balls this season and hasn't really hit for a good batting average since 2013. In Castillo's place might be Chris Herman, who has seemingly emerged from nowhere to post a 279 batting average with five homers and two steals through 86 at-bats. Herman's a career minor leaguer, but we know that production with the bat tends to develop later in careers with catchers. Herman's massive raw power metrics suggest the home run rate could conceivably hold, and Arizona has done everything in their power to keep Herman's bat in the lineup, even playing him four games in the outfield so far. So if Wellington Castillo continues to struggle, Chris Herman could be an excellent target in deeper leagues, especially in the power department. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Miami second baseman Derek Dietrich and Texas right-hander Matt Bush. And here to tell you about it, BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Here's a question for you. What National League second baseman currently has a better batting average than Robinson Cano, as many home runs as Justin Upton, and a better on-base plus slugging percentage than notables Paul Goldschmidt, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, and even Carlos Gonzalez, who has blasted six home runs this past eight games? If you've answered with Washington Nationals second baseman Daniel Murphy, you would be correct. Murphy is currently batting three ninety four with nine home runs and a 1.064 OPS. But there's one more, and he's one of two frequent flyers that will profile this week. A hitter and a pitcher who may be flying under the radar in your league, beginning with, you've guessed it, Miami Marlins second baseman Derek Dietrich. Derek Dietrich's 311 batting average is slightly better than Robinson Cano's 293 average, although Robinson Cano currently has 16 home runs and Derek Dietrich has, well, three. Still, Derek Dietrich's three home runs match the total of Justin Upton's home runs for the entire 2016 season. Three. Sorry, Justin Upton owners. Plus, Derek Dietrich's 899 OPS, or on-base plus slugging percentage, is currently higher than Paul Goldschmidt's 887 OPS, Chris Bryant's 883 OPS, Anthony Rizzo's 879 OPS, and even Carlos Gonzalez's 884 OPS. Are we saying that Derek Dietrich is better than any of those players? No. 
Are we saying that you should trade Paul Goldschmidt, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, or even Carlos Gonzalez to get Derek Dietrich? Absolutely not. Well, maybe Justin Upton. Sorry, Justin Upton owners. We're only kidding, Justin Upton owners. But seriously, Derek Dietrich, playing second base in D. Gordon's absence, is far outperforming expectations. Derek Dietrich's 311 batting average is significantly higher than his projected expected batting average of 262, pointing to a future change or a possible slump. Another warning sign is that Derek Dietrich's current 38% hit rate, equivalent to a 380 batting average on balls in play, is extremely high. That's why Derek Dietrich, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, our own Greg Pyron in the May 18th edition of Facts and Flukes suggested that if Derek Dietrich is able to deliver on the power potential he has flashed in the past, 10 home runs and 250 at-bats in 2015, he should provide sneaky value as a multi-positioned asset in fantasy leagues while D. Gordon is out. Speaking of sneaky value, have you been following the story of the 30-year-old Texas Rangers rookie, Matt Bush? A former first-round pick by the San Diego Padres in 2004, Yes, 2004. Matt Bush finally made his Major League debut on May 13th, 2016 against the Toronto Blue Jays. Since then, in 10 appearances in 2016, Matt Bush has only allowed two earned runs for 180 ERA. More importantly, this right-handed, mid-to-high 90s hurler has established a dominance rate, or strikeouts per nine rate, of 8.1 strikeouts per nine, where we look for pitchers to have a dominance rate of seven strikeouts per nine or higher to be considered elite. On the flip side, Matt Bush has only walked one batter at 10 appearances, giving him a command ratio, or strikeouts-to-walk ratio, of nine, significantly higher than the three strikeouts-to-walks benchmark that we use to identify baseball's best pitchers. According to BaseballHQ.com's Matthew St. Germain, Matt Bush gets good life on a plus four-seam fastball that hits 98 miles per hour, though it can flatten out at times. His command of his fastball to all four quadrants of the strike zone, however, is excellent. So how is it the former first-round draft pick with a 98-mile-per-hour plus fastball and decent secondary pitches, a 80-mile-per-hour curve plus a slider, seemingly comes out of nowhere? Well, first, Matt Bush is converted from a shortstop to a pitcher. The second reason involves a conversion of a different kind. Matt Bush was recently released from prison after serving a three-year sentence for a drunk driving incident in Florida. So look for the Rangers to proceed cautiously. True, he's not likely to move into the ninth inning with Texas, according to BaseballHQ.com's Rod Truesdell in the May 13th edition of Plague Time Today, but Rod Truesdell continued, Stranger things have happened, especially for someone with his stuff. And that's why it's important to consider adding two guys with great stuff. Derek Dietrich and Matt Bush, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups reports. Our matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated 1.0 or higher are strong bets for you to start, while those under minus 1.0 are strong bets for you to sit. In between, you'll have to gauge that based on your risk tolerance and league context.
Here with a look at an American League Saturday game matching Oakland left-hander Rich Hill against Houston right-hander Colin McHugh, as well as an intriguing Sunday National League matchup with Atlanta right-hander Matt Wisler in L.A. to take on Dodgers left-hander Scott Casimir, as well as two other weekend matchups, is BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. Last week, we started by reminding you that the first phase of the fantasy baseball season, during which we advise exercising excruciating patience, had ended. This week, we'll begin by mentioning another milestone. More than one-third of Major League Baseball's 2016 regular season is over. As if to prove that our new matchup ratings really do cluster around zero, this weekend our eight matchup ratings range from minus 0.03 to 1. We have matchups to examine in both leagues on both days, so let's get to it. Saturday's American League matchup features the American League Pitcher of the Month for May, Oakland A's ageless wonder, Rich Hill. Hill heads into Houston's hitter-friendly Minute Maid Park with a matchup rating of 0.50. He's set for a showdown with the Astros' resurgent Colin McHugh and his matchup rating of minus 0.03. Through Thursday, Oakland and Houston have identical 25-29 and 29 records. Versus left-handers, the Astros rank 25th. Versus right-handers, the A's rank 24th. Against teams below 500, the A's are even and the Astros have a winning record. It's not news that Houston is hot temperature-wise, but it's also won 8 of its past 10, 15 of its past 20, and 18 of its past 30. Only five teams have done better over any of those spans, while Oakland has won 6 of its past 10, 11 of its past 20, and only 13 of its past 30. The Astros score more runs per game and allow fewer runs per game than the A's, so as a team, Houston has the edge over Oakland. Colin McHugh has contributed to his team's recent rebound, as he himself has rebounded from five of his first six starts being PQS 1s or 2s. Four of his past five starts have been PQS 3s or better. In six starts over the past 31 days, he has a base performance value of 129 and an expected ERA of 342 on 40 innings pitched with a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 39 to 9, a first-pitch strike rate of 65%, a swinging strike rate of 12%, and a whip of 1-2-3. Hill, who has a mild growing strain and may have this start pushed back at the last minute, also has an expected ERA of 342 in five starts over the past 31 days, with a BPV of 107. Hill has walked more batters than McHugh, but has also struck out more and allowed fewer hits for a whip of 103. So McHugh may have a slight advantage over Hill, but both of these wild cards are worth playing. If you thought that was a close call, it doesn't get any closer than the National League matchup on Saturday in Philadelphia's hitter-friendly Citizens Bank Park, both starters have recommended start matchup ratings of one. One of those ones belongs to one of Fantasy's baseball's most added pitchers of late, the Milwaukee Brewers' Junior Guerra, against the Phillies' Jeremy Hellickson, who also carries a matchup rating of one. Milwaukee scores about a run more per game than Philadelphia, but the Phils allow about a run less per game than the Brewers. Philadelphia has won a few more games against right-handers than Milwaukee, but the Brew Crew has won a few more games versus teams below 500 than the Phillies so the teams are pretty evenly matched. Guerra has been starting in the show for exactly one month at age 31. He started his career as an infielder, was converted to pitcher, released twice, suspended once, played in Mexico and Italy before returning to an independent league stateside. It's been a long road for him, and it shows to what length small market teams must go to find talent. In his six starts, Guerra has two PQS2s, 
two PQS3s, and two PQS4s. Over 36 innings pitched, he has a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 36 to 12, an expected ERA of 367, a whip of 116, and a BPV of 97. Many fantasy owners find the first syllable of Hellickson's name descriptive of their experience with him during the past five years. But his breakout year of 2011 was fueled by a hit rate of 23% and a strand rate of 79%, so expectations were unreasonably high. His expected ERA was 458 and his BPV was 21. In 11 starts this season, though, Hellickson has a career-low expected ERA of 330 and a career-high BPV of 132 a career-low control rate of two walks per nine innings, and a career-high dominance rate of 9.2 strikeouts per nine innings pitched. Hellickson is still inconsistent as shown by his PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio of 45% dominant to 27% disaster, but both he and Guerra should be good to go with in this one. Our American League matchup on Sunday takes us to hitter-friendly Camden Yards in Baltimore, where the O's winless Kevin Gosman has a matchup rating of 0-19. He takes on the New York Yankees' surprisingly successful C.C. Sabathia, who has a matchup rating of 077. Baltimore is scoring two-tenths of a run more per game than it's allowing, and New York is allowing six-tenths of a run more per game than it's scoring. The Orioles have the third-best home record in the majors, while the Yankees have the fifth-worst road record. Against teams under 500, Baltimore has a winning percentage above 650 versus teams over 500, the New York Yankees have a winning percentage below 400. The O's have the edge. Gosman is only 25 and has been a highly touted prospect since his Major League debut three years ago. Despite his winless record, he's showing signs of putting it all together. In 48 innings pitched over eight starts so far this season, he has a career-high BPV of 120, a career-low control rate of 2.1 walks per nine innings, and a career-high command ratio of 4.1 strikeouts per walk. As BaseballHQ.com's Stephen Nickran pointed out in his Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide on May 29, Gosman appears only one step away from cashing in on his rotation anchor upside if he can improve his first pitch strike rate of only 53%. Gosman has a good chance to garner his first win in this game. But not if CC Sabathia has anything to say about it. Nickrand also featured him in that column, noting that Sabathia, quote, posted elite stats and skills in May. His 131 BPV was driven by a top-shelf command ratio of 5-3 based on a dominance rate of 9.5 strikeouts per 9 innings to a control rate of 1.8 walks per 9 innings. His surge in strikeouts came with the support of an 11.8% swinging strike rate too, unquote. The caveat is that Sabathia had a hit rate of 24% and a strand rate of 90% over the past 31 days. Still, his expected ERA was 316. After averaging a PQS2 in his first four starts, Sabathia has three PQS dominant starts in his past four outings for an average score of PQS4. With three closers in the bullpen, there's no sense sitting Sabathia. And our final matchup of the weekend is in the National League on Sunday at LA's pitcher-friendly Dodger Stadium, where reclamation project Scott Casimir sports a matchup rating of 082. The Los Angelinos host the lowly Atlanta Braves young gun Matt Whistler, who has a matchup rating of 044. The Braves rank 28th in run differential, 28th against teams at or above 500, and 29th versus lefties. L.A. truly has the hammer in this matchup. In his 11 starts this year, Kazmir has four PQS dominant starts and four PQS disasters, but three of those dominant efforts were in his last four outings, and two of those were at home. 
Over his past six starts, he's been aided by a hit rate of 23% and a strand rate of 77%, but his ERA is 349 and his expected ERA is 350 for that period. There's really no reason to nitpick in this matchup against Atlanta because, well, it's against Atlanta. In the 2016 forecaster, Brian Rudd wrote the following about Matt Whistler. Quote, plenty of reasons to temper short-term expectations. Control suffered upon promotion to majors. High fly ball rate. Awful 0.7 command versus left-handed batters. Until he gets that last one figured out, there will be plenty more bumps in the road. Unquote. On May 20, Rudd revisited Whistler in a facts and flukes column and wrote, quote, Whistler is making strides but still has work to do. Unquote. Whistler has improved his command against left-handed batters from 0.7 to 2.2, but he's been helped by an unsustainable 22% hit rate. Whistler also deserves credit for avoiding disasters. In 10 starts, he's allowed more than three earned runs only twice. He's also gone eight innings twice, and in his most recent start, he went seven innings and threw only 79 pitches. Plus, he has a PQS-5 versus the Dodgers in Atlanta on April 21. What the hey? Why not throw caution to the wind and let him start for you too? So this weekend, weigh your risks and reward and play your wild cards accordingly as you consider starting Colin McHugh, Rich Hill, Junior Guerra, Jeremy Hellickson, Kevin Gosman, CC Sabathia, Scott Casimir, and Matt Whistler. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion of baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I'd like to talk about the Thursday Night Miracle at Petco Park. Well, it was one of the most exciting games of the year. On Thursday night in San Diego, after five innings, the Padres had a 12-2 lead against the Seattle Mariners. With one out in the top of the sixth and Colin Ray pitching, Seth Smith walked. Robinson Cano and Nelson Cruz hit singles to load the bases for Kyle Seeger. 12-2, some work to do for the fellas right now. Start climbing up the hill, let's see what happens. Right field, Kemp not going to get it. Smith is going to score. Cano's right behind him. Kyle Seager delivers again. Brad Hand comes in to replace Ray on the mound for the Padres, and Seattle counters by pinch-hitting Deho Lee. Lobbered high to the video board in left field. This is up to the Western Metal Supply Building on the second deck. Deho Lee absolutely killed that pitch and the Mariners are suddenly in this ball game it's 12 to 7 Padres in the bottom of the sixth San Diego gets a two-out single from John Jay but he's left aboard and Seattle comes to bat in the top of the seventh down 12 to 7 San Diego brings in Ryan Buchter to replace Brad Hand on the mound he strikes out Sean O'Malley but then Nori Aoki singles on a soft grounder Franklin Gutierrez walks Robinson Cano is hit by a pitch to load the bases. Nelson Cruz strikes out swinging, so there are two out for Kyle Seeger. Seeger has been hot. See if it continues. Hit hard. It gets past. Here comes Aoki. Here comes Goody to score. And Kyle Seeger deals again. Got a 12-9 ball game. With runners on the corners, the Padres bring in former Mariner Brandon Maurer, replacing Ryan Buchter to face Deho Lee. The 3-2. Lee swings, hits a slicer into right field for a base hit. Cano scores. Deho Lee has driven in his fourth run in two at-bats, and he has brought the Mariners within two runs with two outs in the top of the seventh. So there are still two outs, still runners at the corners, and Chris Iannetta comes to the plate. 
There you go, base hit left field, scoring is Seager, it's a one-run game! Chris Iannetta with an RBI. Still two out, and with runners at first and second, the Mariners pinch hit Stefan Romero for Cody Martin. Romero trying to tie it up, 3-2. Line drive, base hit, center field, here comes Dale, he's going to score! Lee rumbles across the plate, and this game is tied at 12! Still two out, and runners at the corners, again. The Padres replace Brandon Maurer with left-hander Matt Thornton, to face Sean O'Malley. Two outs, 0-1 to O'Malley. Base hit, center field, Lamar's lead, 13-12. What a comeback. Sean O'Malley has made this a 13-12 game. This is happening in San Diego. You have got to be shaving me. This is one of the most incredible things I've seen. Still two out. With runners at first and second, Seattle sends to the plate Nori Aoki. If Nori can find some green. He does! In the center field! Here comes Romero! It's 14-12! O'Malley to third! Oh, brother! Is this beautiful or what? Aoki steals second, and with runners at second and third, Franklin Gutierrez is at the plate. Pitch from Thornton. Up the middle! That gets through! Two more runs are gonna score! Pour it on, boys! Pour it on! Well, we come to the ballpark, you just never know what the heck you're going to see. Indeed you don't. Robinson Cano grounded out to end the Mariners' half of the seventh. The Padres got a run back in their half, but that was the end of the scoring, and the Mariners came out with a very weird 16-13 win. In all, they sent 13 men to the plate in the seventh inning and had seven straight two-out singles to score nine runs to take the lead in a game where they had been down by ten. It was the biggest comeback in Mariners history. The previous mark, an eight-run deficit against the Angels back in 1996. The lead was the largest the Padres have ever blown. The Mariners became the first team since 2001 to win a game in which they trailed by at least 10 runs after at least five innings. In that 2001 miracle comeback game, the Indians came from 12 runs down against, you probably remember, the Seattle Mariners. In this game, San Diego pitchers threw 214 pitches in their nine innings of work. It was the 17th game in Padres history where the team combined to throw 200 or more pitches in a game that did not go into extra innings. The Padres now 0-17 in those games. And we'll give the last word to Seattle starter Wade Miley, who gave up nine runs in four and two-thirds innings before being yanked from the game. Afterwards, Miley told reporters... I knew going in if I could hold him to 12, we had a chance. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. This week's Master Notes comment is a little different. Here at Baseball HQ Radio, it's not the same one as the written Master Notes column. That written piece is about how I built a new pitcher metric based on pitchers' ability to fool batters. You can get that column and every Master Notes column free from BaseballHQ.com or deliver to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes, usually the same one that's published at the website, here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 27 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Vice President and Director of Stats at MLB.com, Corey Schwartz, a great guy, always fun to talk to. 
I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I'll have a facts and flukes spotlight piece this week at BaseballHQ.com, taking an in-depth look at the breakout season of Baltimore right-hander Chris Tillman. Also, don't forget to check out that Master Notes column, a different version than what you heard today on the show, which you can get at BaseballHQ.com for free. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our featured guest expert will be Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.